Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Check us out at um, Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, basically wherever you choose to listen to podcasts, the Sonic Cinema Podcast is there. The YouTube channel, though, in addition to the uh, interviews and podcasts you'll get on the stream, uh, you'll also get quick take reviews. And uh, recently I've done um, reviews for uh, Elvis as well as Enchanted and Disenchanted. And that is the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Thank you to the people who've gotten me over the 500 subscriber mark there. And uh, I I hope uh, to continue to have some great content for you there. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Right now, I am I started a series back in August called Leaving the Collection. And basically, I'm looking through, looking at my collection and looking at movies that have kind of had their run in my collection. And I give them one last spin and I do a video review and basically explain why it's leaving. And you can see that on patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. One last thing, uh, check out my Bandcamp for the original score for Brian Ackley's Player PhD, which should be coming out this month. And uh, the soundtrack is available, as well as all my other albums and EPs on Bandcamp. If you use the promo code New Beginnings up through New Year's Eve, uh, you will get 15% off your order. That is Bandcamp, and I hope you check that out. So this is actually a discussion that's a long time coming, and it's actually a discussion that I'm kind of surprised I haven't really gotten to. Uh, if you know me, if you've followed Sonic Cinema, I've talked about uh, this filmmaker several times before, whether it's in commentary form and print re reviews of pretty much all of his movies at this point, as well as a couple of times on the podcast, but this is going to be the first major deep dive into him. And that is my favorite filmmaker of all time and Steven Spielberg. And you hear that name, I'm sure any number of images comes up, whether it's we're going to need a bigger boat, whether it's Richard Dreyfuss making a mashed potato mountain, whether it's E.T. phoning home, or um, the horrors of the Holocaust in Schindler's List, or the war in Saving Private Ryan. Um, join me to discuss Steven Spielberg, our two guests, previous guests on the podcast. First up, we have Danielle Soltzman, and then we also have Darren Lundberg of NostalgiaCast. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. It's great to be back. Uh, <laughs> you, you both have been on before, so we don't necessarily need to go into too many uh introductions, but I would like to give you guys the opportunity to uh, basically shout out what you guys are working on as far as your respective uh, outlets. Danielle, ladies first. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I mean, it's end of the year, so I am working on uh, a lot of December anniversary uh, reviews. In addition to that, it's uh, my, my own awards, the Salsi Awards. First up will be documentaries, and then later this year will be the rest for uh, narrative uh, features. 
where some outlets will run their awards before the last big films are screened, I wait until at least I see those films. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually going to ask about that. Yeah, I'm somebody who I know I always do my favorites of the list on favorites of the year list on New Year's Eve. And then I usually wait until I start talking about the Oscars to get into my true top 10, because by that point, you, I, I feel more com most comfortable about what I have in my top 10. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand how releasing a top 10 list the 1st of December, when I know most, the vast majority of people in the entire world have not seen Avatar. I think Guillermo del Toro is the only one who probably has based on his recent tweets about it. But, um... Oh, I do know that the junket is taking place in London this weekend, and having seen a few uh, film friends already post their photo with Jim Cameron, I'm assuming that they already saw the film. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I'm kind of surprised we haven't gotten our uh, screening invite yet in Georgia. I would imagine it's probably coming this week, since the movie comes out next week, but, uh... Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what that's going to do to the end of the year, and I'm kind of curious what type of note that's going to end up on the uh, end of the year as far as the box office goes. So, Darren, what do you have going on over at Nostalgia Cast? Well, unfortunately, I don't have any like top tens or awards because unlike uh, you, find people who are able to watch like a lot of like current movies. I spend a lot of my time in the past. <laughs> so Nostalgia Cast, we just devote ourselves to movies that we grew up on, just trying to revisit, I guess, the good ends, you want to call it. So right now, we're recording a 90s, uh, we call it 90s Palooza. So it's a 90s retrospective, as opposed to taking movies that we grew up on from the 80s or the 70s or anything like that. We're taking movies that defined us as movie people. So the 90s is when uh, my podcast pal Johnny and I, that's when we cut our teeth on all these movies and saw everything. And so we're just devoting our season to movies that we love and, uh, uh, you know, talking about movies that, that meant something to us or meant something to the conversation. So we're having a great time um, with, with guests and being able to chat with them about these movies. And so, yeah, that's that's what we're doing now. We're As we're recording this, we're releasing our seventh episode of season four tomorrow. I guess it's episode 68 in total episodes we have. But uh, yeah, we'll be releasing our retrospective on that thing you do starting tomorrow as of this recording. So that's definitely one that you're excited to talk about. Yeah, I just rewatched that late, that last year um, in preparation for my 1996 retrospect, retrospective year, and it was it's such a fun movie. Uh, but I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to the discussion that you and I and you and I and Johnny and. Uh, inspire with uh, our the the film that I brought onto that one, the Rainmaker. Right. That's that's going to be an interesting one, and I think it's going to be one that a lot of people haven't really thought about for a while. Right, but still very important as far as John Grisham being a '90s staple. Right, you had the, the Tom Clancy techno <clears throat> thrillers, you had the John Grisham um, legal thrillers, you had Tarantino, obviously. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, even though the Rainmakers, not one that they talk about it, but that is still heavy in the rotation. 90s wise, I would say. That yeah. was 97, right? That was 97. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember <laughs> seeing, I remember seeing that uh, in theaters because that kicked off, uh, my, uh, purchasing of every single legal thriller by John Grisham, <laughs> who, yeah. Then became one of my favorite authors, but he has since been surpassed by uh, Brad, Mel Brad Meltzer in the uh, legal thriller department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Um, you know, it's funny because of the fact that it's like I know for me personally that Steven Spielberg's always been a huge part of my movie going, uh, movie watching, movie going life. I mean, you can't grow up in the late 70s, early 80s and into the 90s and not have seen Jaws or the Indiana Jones movies or E.T. Um, and, you know, it's funny because of the fact that when I'm, I'm a bit weird, I'm a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to my love of films coming in. When I was a kid, I basically just watched movies because I enjoyed watching movies, but I didn't necessarily think about the filmmakers behind them. I didn't necessarily think about the film craft behind them. That came in, that came when I was a teenager. Um, but Spielberg was certainly one with those films, with movies he produced, like American Tale, like Goonies, uh, that meant something to me. Uh, and we'll go ahead and start with uh, Danielle. What was it, what were some of your early experiences with Spielberg as a film goer that made you really connect with him? Well, I mean, the first film that I recall seeing on the big screen was The Land Before Time. Hmm. And I can't remember if I saw Fievel on the big screen or if I later saw that at home. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and then after that, it, you have to go to book Jurassic Park, especially Jurassic Park in 93. I saw that twice in theaters then. Eventually got it on VHS, got the entire series on VHS, upgraded those to DVD, later upgraded them to uh, 4K Blu-ray plus digital. But yeah, I mean, it all goes back to those dinosaur movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Darren, what about you? Well, my movie knowledge actually, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if it's hyperbole or not. It, it begins with Spielberg. I've said this quite a few times on our podcast. Um, Spielberg was the first filmmaker that I learned his name. Jaws was the first movie that got me into movies. I remember watching it on video. I know I was born two years after the movie came out, but I, I don't know how I got it. On, I watched it on video. I know my mom, uh, again, I grew up a single kid, and so it was just my mom taking care of me all on her own, didn't have any brothers and sisters. So when she would go out and work, she would just leave me with movies. But the first movie I remember becoming obsessed with with Jaws because I have obviously that, that primal fear of being alive, <laughs> not being able to swim, that kind of thing. So when I watched Jaws, fascinating. It just fascinated me. I couldn't figure out why this thing that was in front of my eyes scared me so much, involved me so much. I didn't know why I identified so much with the Brody character being afraid of the water, being, again, being afraid of eating alive, unlike the Hooper or Quint characters who have faced that before. So I just, I studied everything. I said, what, you know, where did they make the shark? Who is this guy? Spielberg was the first name that I learned movie-wise because I couldn't figure out why this guy had enraptured so much and so i learned you know the, the the jaws log the gottlieb book you know that became like a bible my mom would take me to book nooks and book fairs and i would just collect jaws the novel eventually even though i don't really like the novel i would still collect it because it was connected to the movie and so i i, I still have somewhere like 20 copies of jaws some with different covers some of the same color covers i was just obsessed and so mm -hmm. that's where I don't remember any movie before Jaws. That's the first movie that I remember. That's, I remember, I know everything about it to the point where it came out in Blu-ray and I remember, so I can see the ripples in the water. I remember telling my wife that. I can see the ripples in the water over here. That's how obsessed I, 
that's how new it was to be seeing. Like I, I knew every frame that felt. So yeah, Spielberg, I know that a lot of people push back and maybe we'll all agree with it. It's he's sentimental, but movies are sentimental, right? I just think that, and we'll talk about it, but no other filmmaker has been able to rip memories and feelings from my heart or from my brain and project them on screen. I don't know how he does it, but if you're talking about your favorite filmmakers, Brian, he's got to be my favorite because there's no other filmmaker that engages me on that emotional level. And it's just, aside from his obvious skill as a filmmaker, he is just uncanny for the way he's able to show me up on the screen. I'm just, I'm in awe of this man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's funny because of the fact that, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's funny because my mom is always, my mom always told me like we saw E.T. 12 times in the theater. I believe her. I mean, you know, it's like, but it, it's funny because I don't necessarily have that memory of going to, I mean, I would have been about four or five that year. So I don't necessarily have that memory of going to see it. But one of the memories that, one of the things she's always told me was first time we went to go see it, I guess I had to go to the bathroom during the first flying sequence. So then oh. when we came back and they fly at the end, it was a surprise to us, but not everybody else in the audience. And, you know, I do remember, I do remember watching Temple of Doom. And even though it's like, even though it's not necessarily considered a lot of people's favorites of the Indiana Jones movies, you, I still remember going to the theater to watch that movie. I remember with Last Crusade, um, you know, my mom and I went to go see it. It used to be, it was at the theater that I, before was, became the theater that I would work at for 19 years or so. I remember, we went to go see it there and I remember the scene where they're on the beach and Sean Connery shoos the birds away to get into the biplane and I, I remember leaning over to my mom and just saying the word shredded tweet and just making a joke about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Daniel, Danielle, I believe I talked about this when we talked about uh, Jurassic World with regards to Jurassic World Dominion earlier this year. You know, for watching the first Jurassic Park in theaters and it was packed house, the scene in the kitchen with the Velociraptors, somebody was walking behind us in the row behind us and accidentally brushed up against my mom's hair, freaked her the hell out (laughs) with that. And it's one of those things where Spielberg as, you know, look, the craftsman of Spielberg is basically unimpeachable for a lot of people, and and rightfully so. he's, He's a master from the time he made from his first film he made for TV Dune all, or Doom Duel excuse me Duel. I don't know I don't know I'm, I don't know what I was thinking uh <clears throat> to the the one that just came out the Fablements his his command of the language of film is absolute but one of the things that is so amazing about him at his best is like you were saying, Darren, the ability to wrestle emotions, to to get into our emotions and connect with us in a way that no other filmmaker really has been capable of. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. I don't know. Uh, uh, Daniel, what, what are your feelings on like Spielberg as a, as a craftsman? What, uh, like Jurassic Park and things like that. Why would you, why did you go back and see that again and again? Some of it's the nostalgia. And then a lot of it uh, in the last few years was, I mean, you had Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, which led to rewatching the sequel trilogies. But like every now and then, I mean, you want to get back into the originals and watch those. I mean, I probably had, uh, I mean, going into Dominion for sure, I did the entire binge, but, but I mean, I'll do Jurassic Park on its own uh, repeatedly throughout the year. So it's like a nostalgia, like tapping into like your brainstem. <laughs> I think he's then, got an uncanny ability. And then some of it could be uh, just, especially during the pandemic, wanting to watch people having a worse day than me. Well, that's one of the things that's always kind of interesting about film is the way that filmmakers are able to show us stories of people who are having absolutely awful times, whether, you know, whether you're talking disaster movies, whether you're talking action movies or even comedies or dramas and yet we we sympathize and we sympathize with them immediately part of us naturally our, our human nature to empathize with others or hopefully are are in our nature to empathize with others but also there's something about the way that filmmakers approach stories and i i love that spielberg over the years has always looked for stories that basically are ultimately about us connecting with other people. And, you know, even something like Jurassic Park does that. Certainly E.T. is about that. Lincoln is about that. Jaws is about that. You know, even... Close Encounters. Yeah, Terminal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... And the the terminal is a wonderful example of that, and it's underrated one. Um, you know, it's it's certainly not one of my best one of the best Spielbergs, but it's one that I, I do think gets a short uh, that that doesn't get enough love. And I I think what Tom Hanks does in that movie is just absolutely delightful. And in particular, the ending of that movie is always always worked for me. What one of the things that I'm always I've been fascinated in when it comes to Spielberg is the transition we've had we've seen him in since he made Schindler's List. You know, he's certainly made fewer and fewer escapist movies over the years. I mean, you know, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Lost World, BFG. Uh, Adventures of Tintin. There's really not much else that could be like truly escapist. Like a little bit of everything else is relatively serious, whether it comes to the themes or the ways he approaches it. And as people who are who who've grown up with Spielberg, like me, what has it been for you to? And uh, Danielle, we'll start with you. What has it been with you? With you, is you've continued to watch Spielberg over 
the years and uh, seen him evolve as a storyteller. I mean, watching him, like, they're the typical uh, tropes that you expect from a Spielberg film, especially in the large majority of his films. I mean, you've got the broken families. You've got, uh, let's see, broken family. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've got broken <laughs> families in a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's brutally cold in Chicago this weekend. I mean, I'm burning calories just to stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean... You also have this uh, thing where he does a fun film, then he does a serious film, then he goes back to another fun film, or it could be a few serious films, and then another fun film. And like, he did, uh, while he was editing Jurassic Park, he was also shooting Schindler's List, where he had Robin Williams calling in just to uh, lighten the mood a bit. Then he... Saving Private Ryan was after uh, Lost World, which was another fun film. And then Saving Private Ryan's a more serious film. And then once you get into the 2000s, in response to 9-11, you've got Minority Report. You've got War of the Worlds. You've got Munich. I mean, you want to talk about fun films and those? I mean, The Terminal is a comedy, but I mean, it's also one of those that could be seen as a response to... 9 11. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. this guy who's pretty much not able to go home, but he can't really uh, travel throughout the United States because of his visa. Yeah. It feels like there's a, a lesser output as you get into the uh, 2010s. But maybe that's because I've uh, basically erased Ready Player One from my mind. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned. Um... Schindler's List. I know the thing with Spielberg is right out of the gate, he was doing, like you said, those escapist movies. Again, he had an uncanny way of tapping into what people wanted to see on the screen. You got, what was that? You got Jaws, you got Close Encounters, you got you know, Skipping 1941, you got Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've got E.T., you've got, you know, Temple of Doom, you've got, and then him producing like Back to the Future. So he had his, I think he had his finger on the pulse of what everybody wanted to be entertained by. And again, he was so good at tapping in what a certain generation wanted to see from movies. But there comes a point when you're a filmmaker where, yeah, you've had the blockbusters, but people don't take you seriously as a filmmaker because you're just making the popcorn entertainment, right? And I know he tried to chase that with Empire of the Sun and The Color Purple, and that didn't really work for him, even though those are, you know, admirable movies, admirable attempts at uh, being that adult filmmaker. But it wasn't until Schindler's List, Brian, I think you're right, that something in him changed. I know that... um, the, the thing that maybe, I think the thing that sparked our conversation is Jason of Binge Movies, like talking about Jurassic Park being, um, you know, Spielberg's last populist movie. And, and if you look at it, yeah, that's the last one that kind of captured the public eye. But even then, it, it's a tough conversation to have because we all love Spielberg so much that we want him to keep doing it. But, you know, I hate to say it, but Jason is right. You know, he's he's making movies that are mean something different to him he's making movies that about i think he was just quoted recently jason saying something about he's making movies about his childhood now and it's not really connecting to people as much as because another thing like daniel you're talking about things that are recognizable from spielberg like growing up with the movie brats things like that they were taking like copas corsese and the palma they were taking things that people had already seen in the 50s 40s 60s you know everything before and just repurposing them and making them new. And that was what's so exciting. So you can even tell that's part of Spielberg's like 
you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon was a lot of that job. So there's a lot of things that feed into what movies he's made. I just think that after he did Schindler's List, something changed in him where he was like, yeah, I can't go back and do these escapist ones, even though I think like Minority Report has some stuff in it that's just as e- as good or not better than most of his most crowd-pleasing moments that he did in anything before that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think Christ- A Crystal Skull, even though I don't mind that movie, there was just something off about it. I think even Spielberg recognized that he's not the same filmmaker. He's not the same kind of being able to to grab the public's attention and do it because people push back against Crystal Skull. I just think that his decision to not come back for the fifth one kind of stems from it. Just, he's kind of lost something there. But not that, you know, with Fablemans and with The Terminal and with Bridge of Spies and all these movies, he's making movies that mean something to him. I, re- I remember he turned down Harry Potter to direct that first one because I think he was quoted as saying, I could do this. I could make a billion dollars off of Harry Potter, but that's not the same person. That's why he did AI. He was a much more personal filmmaker kind of chasing that, different dragon I, I even though again i hate to say it like a lot of his movies haven't been as you know powerful or, or, or hitting that that public uh, you know want since jurassic park it's tough to say that but even though i do consider it being true fableman's kind of we saw fableman's in a theater where it was just me and my wife and two other people what world are we living in where spielberg movie is not in a, a crowded with people yeah, and it's just yeah. playing on one theater. You know what I mean? It's just so. Even though it's tough, I I still appreciate who he is now, even though he's not quite ringing the box up. I mean, you have to look at the audiences these days. I mean, especially with streaming. Yeah. Like I'm looking at the box office for Thanksgiving weekend, and a Disney film is bombing at the box office. A Disney, an animated Disney film, that does not happen. No, that really does not happen. I mean. And Fablemans, I mean, I've heard from friends where it's playing in the smallest theater. And so, of course, it's going to not do as well as, say, Glass Onion for the audience per at theaters. And, I mean, December 13th VOD, I mean, I'm sure other people like having their movies to be able to watch at home earlier than usual. But we're a few years away from theaters just being... Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar, and other blockbusters, and that's just going to be so sad. Yeah. Well, again, if you're looking at a movie theater, the movie theater we went to, Black Panther was still playing on 12 screens. Again, if you're looking at, at the MCU movies, I think the Black Panther movies and maybe the Guardians of the Galaxy movies are more personal. They, they kind of chase after that personal bent that I look for in movies, even franchise stuff. So I don't want to denigrate Black Panther because I know it has a lot to say, but it's just why is Black Panther playing in 12 theaters and the Fablemans is playing in theaters? Strange World is playing in one theater. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, she Said is playing in one theater. Like, what are you going to go see? It, it's just strange that the multiplexes just seem to be playing five movies total, even though they have 20 screens. Yeah, I, I remember this whole push for uh, 3D films that started after Avatar made a gazillion dollars. I mean, I remember in December when you have everything coming out and it's like, all these films playing in 3D. I personally would like to see them in 2D, so I try and find the 2D showtimes that work with me. And that's why I never saw any of the Hobbit films in theaters, because I never found a showtime that worked. Mm-hmm. That's on top of having working in my father's office at the time. Yeah. Um, no, and, and, you know, I, I do... So I do think part of the... I do think there's 
some there's definitely some truth when it comes to the 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 prolification of uh Marvel and other tentpole movies that are basically dominating the multiplexes to why stuff like Fableman's and she said does not get its audience. But it's like the one thing I do think a lot of people to a certain extent are not taking into consideration is the fact that Fableman's is currently only in 600 theaters were in, in the United States and North America. And so whatever, you know, and the fact that it's coming out on the 13th on VOD is disheartening to say the least. I was really hoping they would expand it at least. Cause I know when I saw it at my screening, which was a combination of press and audience, general audience, the audience was into it. The audience liked it. So it's like, you can tell there's still an audience for these movies and there are still movies that connect with audiences and you know but the fact that you are more likely just going to see movies like Black Panther in the still the vast majority of screens is you know and again I love the Black Panther movies I and I'm a nominally a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe but at the same time it's like when you have that in like half the screens, you know, you're basically just kind of, you're, you're kind of giving, you kind of see studios kind of giving up on trying to push stuff theatrically. And it's a shame because of the fact that I, I, I do think there's still room for, I do think there's still room for Spielberg. And it's like, you know, there are going to be people who see Fableman's in on VOD who, love the movie and it's like oh well why wasn't this in why didn't i get to see this in theaters and it's like well that's a good question but because i mean the same thing happened with west side story last year um but west side also had the problem same problem that nightmare alley had it was going up against the surge of omicron yeah. yeah so audiences were not really going to theaters at that time it made some money, but I mean, it's definitely one of the lowest performing movies of Spielberg's at least last 10 years, if not more. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I don't think that's a fault of the movie either. I mean, regardless of the, I think West Side Story, a lot of people had a problem vibing with that because it's a tough, it's a tough musical. It's, it doesn't exist to make you feel good about yourself. It, it confronts a lot of things. But mm-hmm. West Side Story, I would argue, is just if or not if not more exciting from a filmmaking perspective all this he's just applying that same blockbuster mentality to a musical form it's it's the same thing that he applies to the indiana jones movies it's just in a musical it's just people don't don't have that connection to something first of all a musical or something like west side story which is an ip i'm sorry to say you know it's something that's a nostalgic kind of piece like a remake kind of thing so People aren't going to connect with that either. I, I get that. It's just a shame that I, I don't see any, I don't really see any difference in quality of the filmmaking between Jurassic Park and West Side Story. It's just the, I mean, the quality of the filmmaking itself. You know, yeah. you know what I yeah. mean? It, yeah. It's just the, it's just so exciting and inventive, but you know, it, it's not. And then again, I'm a fan of the Marvel movies too, but if you compare the filmmaking, it's very conveyor belt. It's very, you know, it's just a process. Everything's mm-hmm. done the same. So a lot of that just kind of 
if I compare those two aesthetics, I'm kind of bored by the marble aesthetic because it's the same thing I've seen multiple, if not dozens of times in the past month. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And so that's probably why I, uh, for all the Marvel films that I keep going back to for rewatch is it's usually Winter Soldier and maybe Civil War. Because mm-hmm. Winter yeah. Soldier was just so different from the rest of them because the Russo brothers brought that 70s vibe, that 70s political thriller. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, and it's funny because of the fact that, yeah, this, this, this conversation, this discussion did kind of start with uh, you and Jason talking about uh, Jurassic Park being um, being his last populist movie. I mean, the the thing I would say, counter, to a certain extent, yes, I agree with you, but I would counter that by saying, I think he's still, he's still nominally a populist filmmaker in the way he approaches each subject. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's just that Jurassic Park was the last time that he was the biggest brand in Hollywood. And I mean, yeah, the lost world did well. He's had hits after Jurassic Park, but they never were on the level of what what Jurassic Park or E.T. was. And, uh, but I, I do think he's still very much has that feeling of wanting to connect with as wide an audience as he can but yeah the the stories are more serious the but yeah the stories are definitely more serious and i do think to a certain extent he's somebody who to a certain extent you know sometimes for better sometimes for worse there's kind of he he's one of those people who's kind of seen the writing on the wall when it comes to certain films blowing up and certain films, you know, and certain films going by the wayside. And I do think part of the reason of his shift over the past 30 years is it's him because of the fact that he wants to tell different types of stories. He wants to tell more personal stories. But I also think that, you know, can you ever really see, even though he's the director of Jurassic Park in the Indiana Jones movies, can you ever see him doing something like a Marvel movie or a Lord of the Rings? Or, I mean, yes, there was, he was talked about for Harry Potter, but I know part of the reason he didn't do that is because of the fact that uh, the author did not, they wanted an all British cast. They didn't, and he wanted to work with Haley Joel Osment, and that led to AI. And so um, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I do think he he still is chasing at that big audience, but the problem is the audience is not as big as it used to be. It's too fractured. Yeah. Yeah. Plus the cost of theater tickets these days, which is another reason why people are just waiting to watch them at home. I mean, especially during the pandemic, like audiences are now being trained that a film is going to arrive on a streaming service around 30, 45 days after its initial uh, release. Yeah. Yeah. You don't bad. I mean, (laughs) I can't help but feel bad for the animators at Disney at Pixar and others that their films are not getting seen on the big screen. They are going to get seen on the smaller screen. Yeah. 
No, and it's it's uh, it's it's ridiculous. It it truly is. I mean, we're we're long past the time where it was six years before ET hit VHS, or one year until Jurassic Park hit VHS. You know, and it's it's one of those things where it's like that is seeing that era change is you know, you it like like everything else when you know, I mean, and you you talked about we talked about it a little bit when we talked about nostalgia on uh your episode your podcast, Darren. It's like the whole idea of having these memories of childhood and having these memories of growing up a certain way and then seeing the way it shifts. And I you definitely see that with the urgency with which people uh take in Spielberg's work as well as the way they end up seeing Spielberg's work. Something like um Bridge of Spies would if that came out in the 70s it would have taken the nation by storm. You know, it's it's just that kind of movie. I think if you're talking again, Brian, about nostalgia, like during the 90s, if I was bringing that up, that's when I saw everything. Didn't matter what yeah. it was. I would see two, three movies in a weekend. So that's how I was able to discover like the giant movies, like an Independence Day, Twister, or and also catch the independent stuff, like a Sling Blade or an English Patient, you know, all these uh, different, or um, what's the movie I'm thinking of? The Sweet Hereafter, the Adam McGuinn yeah. that was... Ninety seven speak. That's my favorite movie that year. If that had come out today, that would have been straight to streaming. It would be hard to try to find a copy of it. Again, I think that the way audiences are geared today, and I think maybe COVID on the Quran all tied into that. If you're going to go out to see a movie, you're going to go out and see something that's a giant that you're going to get your money's worth, right? I don't know if people are connecting to something like the Fablemans in the same way. You don't go and see Lincoln as a big screen IMAX experience. You know, that's not what people want. I also think that you know that's what people are attuned to. Like if you, again, if you're going to go see a movie and Black Panther is playing in 12 theaters, you know, that's what everybody's going to go see. I'll go see that one. Nobody wants to go see and find the smaller movies. And that's, again, the problem with Marvel is even though Spielberg is so influential and the Marvel movies, Danielle, you mentioned Civil War. There are pieces in Civil War that are very, uh, Captain America Civil War, that are very Spielbergian. But the average viewer is not going to watch Civil War and think, oh, that's Spielberg. That's a Spielberg game. They're going to think that Civil War is the newest thing. Everything that's happening on screen for Civil War is the first time it's ever been done. And I think that's a problem with people's mindsets these days where they take someone like Spielberg for granted that he can go out and make a movie like The Fablemans or like West Side Story that's just very, he knows how to make a movie. He's a master craftsman. He can do these things in his sleep. But people aren't going to recognize that because I don't know. Would you guys think it's like old hat compared to the way the, 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 the blockbuster kind of, and you know, when you have blockbusters and you have nothing but superhero movies, that kind of taints like everybody else's kind of uh, purview. I think, I don't know. Do you guys mm-hmm. agree with that? And VFX alone. I mean, since Jurassic park, I mean, if not for Jurassic park, you won't have all these VFX heavy uh, films and CGI because that was the game changer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that's, yeah, and I was, I was actually thinking the exact same thing, where it's like, you know, in a way, Jurassic Park and T2 were to the 90s and beyond what Jaws and Star Wars were for the 70s, where they're the movies that basically were audience perceptions of what they wanted just drastically shifted. 
I mean, I, I think with, you know, as far as with Marvel, especially, I mean, I'm, you know, and again, not trying to shit on Marvel, but the fact is, is the biggest <laughs> brand on the planet now. So it it's, it's the easy thing to talk about, but it's also the most indicative thing because of the fact that, you know, we, we got Spider-Man No Way Home last year, which is tapping into nostalgia from 20 years ago because <laughs> yeah. it has the previous Spider-Man in that. So it's like, that is, that's, and you have Stranger Things and you have, you know, you have Stranger Things, you have Ghostbusters, you have all these things. They're basically tapping into nostalgia from the past 30, 40 years. And you're right, Darren, the idea that, you know, with, they're not seeing the influences of Spielberg, who's clearly, who's very much an influence to a lot of the filmmakers making Marvel movies. What they're seeing is, oh, this is, this is a big Hollywood blockbuster. And this is, and then you, with the Marvel universe, it's like, oh, the different puzzle pieces and stuff like that. Yeah, I do think to a certain extent, general audiences do feel Marvel fatigue. I do believe that. The regular, the hardcore audiences for Marvel, though, they're still going to at least try the TV series. They're still going to try each movie and see how it connects into one another. But the fact of the matter is, and that's kind of, and you you look at Harry Potter, you look at Lord of the Rings, those were continuing stories throughout the years. And it's like, it, it's almost like the shift in, even though sequels have always basically been following the same characters from story to story, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, you're following the same characters over years of their lives and to this and seeing different adventures all building up to this one moment. And that's what the MCU is. That's what the DC universe is. Well, kind of, uh, <laughs> but, or it's trying to be, but the fact of the matter is it's not as successful, but, um, that's basically what, so Marvel is almost as much as it is Spielberg, certainly inspiring the filmmakers you have movies like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter where that serialized storytelling that basically point A to point B to point C and then point C is the huge finale. That's basically what Marvel's going off of as opposed to the traditional wave we think in terms of sequels. Yeah, but those films were, what, at least one film a year, not... Three films a year, plus maybe three to four uh, series on <laughs> Disney Plus that you also have to watch, unless you want to get really confused at the next film. Like, yeah, with Doctor Strange, you needed to watch What If, you needed to watch uh, No Way Home, you needed to watch Loki, just because of how it's uh, touching on the uh, multiverse. And if you oh, have yeah, so and many, Division. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have I so many of these that movies. One. It, so many of these movies kind of being so omnipresent, uh, I don't blame people. They think that's all the movies that are being made. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah, all like, we see. I know Star Wars fans that have not watched Clone Wars, have not watched Rebels, and 
all of a sudden they're watching Mandalorian on Disney Plus, and it's like, wait, who's that character? <laughs> who's that character? Wait, who's Thrawn? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, like, now with the coming Ahsoka series, you have to watch all of, Ahs- of Clone Wars. You have to watch all of uh, Rebels. Yeah. I, 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 have, I have thoughts on Star Wars ways of trying to tie everything in. I, I, I'm not as big a fan of that one. Marvel, I understand, because that's what comic books have done for decades. Star Wars, it's like you're, you're kind of getting away from what made Star Wars, at least on the big screen, fun. It wasn't all about, oh, tying in all of these things from the novels and stuff like that, you know. But, uh, you know, going, but it's, it's interesting to see, we're, you know, trying to go back to Spielberg here for a bit. You know, you, you can well, Star Wars is a good tie-in, Brian. It is a good tie-in because he. Without Star, without Star Wars, you don't get Raiders. Yeah. Because they were yeah. vacationing while uh, Star Wars was coming out. And that's when Spielberg said, he told George that he had wanted to make a uh, Bond film and. George responds by uh, proposing this uh, character uh, inspired by the pulp serials and mm-hmm. just happens to be an archaeologist, Dr. Henry Jones uh, Jr., better known as Indiana Jones because the dog's name was Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and I, I love this story about how they basically swap points on Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and <laughs> Spielberg still seeing points off of Star Wars. Yep. Um, I, I love, you know, and he, he was somebody who Lucas went to, to, you know, possibly direct Return of the Jedi, but he couldn't do it because of Director's Guild rules, but he did end up doing some storyboarding and sequencing on Revenge of the Sith when the prequels came out. Um, I, I, you know, and, but Indiana Jones is a great example of that type of franchise that you don't necessarily see anymore which is you're following this one character there's not an overarching idea to this trilogy it's just following indiana jones from one adventure to another you know yeah the nazis are the same villains and raiders and last crusade and apparently in dial of destiny but we'll you know but the fact of the matter is the characters are different yes you're gonna see some of your old favorites but at the same time the story is different it's not about telling this big broad story of this character it's about entertaining you for two hours and just you know see you in a few more years maybe well the other thing with if you're talking franchise stuff i know i'm tired of going on another tangent but i know tarantino got in trouble recently one of many comments that he got in trouble for was him saying, why would I want to work for Marvel? Like, I'm, I'm not a hired hand. I'm not looking for a job, right? I know people look, push back on that. But the thing with that is Tarantino's absolutely right. Like, I don't want to go see a Tarantino-directed Marvel movie because at the end of the day, it's going to be a Marvel movie. Yeah. I know that we talk about James Gunn and uh, Ryan Coogler being the most personal filmmakers in the MCU. Even Black Panther has that little end credits thing where a Bucky comes out, right? Even uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever has to introduce Ironheart. Even uh, James Gunn, Gardens of the Galaxy 2, it has uh, Adam, I can't even remember his last name. The, the character Adam Warlock. Adam Warlock, right? 
even he's in there. So even though they're the most personal Marvel movies, they're still connected to a different movie. They're still introducing characters from a different movie 10% 10% of that movie, and again, Black Panther, we can even go back and apply to that with the, I know everybody pushes back against that last fight um, between T'Challa and uh, Killmonger, but that's Feige, that's that's his stamp coming into it and saying, no, I, I want to have my stamp. And so mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler, a little, his personality kind of slips from that because it has to appease the Marvel machine. And it's, you know, I don't want to see Spielberg come in and do somebody else's thing, which is kind of what kingdom of the crystal skull was because he complains all the time that that was lucas's idea but going back to spielberg if you're looking at franchises the franchise that he's done the main one raiders of the lost ark or indiana jones that's still his franchise he still started so if he's going to do another one even though temple of doom and last crusader franchise film they're still unmistakably steven spielberg movies they're Mm -hmm. not even though they're part of a machine they're above and beyond that machine i think that that's the difference and I, i think out of all of them, Crystal Skull kind of became more mechanical. It wasn't as much of a personal stamp. And even by then, like his personal stuff, we kind of are, are becoming like parodies of themselves because we've seen them. So I, I just think franchise-wise, I don't want to see a Spielberg do something like that because I, I want to go see a Spielberg movie to see what he has to say and teach me and say to me as opposed to just feeding into a fast food machine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like, look, I I do lament the fact that we never got to see Peter Jackson's film for Tintin. But I love that Spielberg was able, Spielberg and Jackson had this collaboration on the first one where you see Spielberg working on a completely different level as an adventure filmmaker where he has... At the one on the one hand, he has more control than he's ever had on an adventure film because he can imagine it, it's possible because of the computer and the animation. But on the other hand, he's letting himself he he's he's not he's letting himself be hamstrung by the fact that he's not shooting it in live action the way he would back with Rares of Lost Ark. And the way that he was able to adapt to that is brilliant. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, Crystal Skull, look, I, I enjoy Crystal Skull. It's, it's, it's a fun movie, but Not terrible. The, no, it's, it's fine. And there are some moments that definitely feel like the original trilogy of the Indiana Jones trilogy. But, you know, I, I think part of the issue with Crystal Skull was also, like how I I think you can kind of see them wrestling with this question of well how do we use some of the technology we have now that we didn't have making Rares of Lost Ark through Last Crusade how do we employ that with Crystal Skull plus it just took so freaking long for them to make Crystal Skull it took like nineteen years and you know if they'd gotten to it in the nineties it wouldn't have been the same thing. And, uh, you know, you, you always kind of wonder about that as well. Well, I mean, they still shot practical on camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's a different kind of sheen maybe to it because it's Kaminsky as opposed to Slocum or, you know, somebody working on 
Crystal Skull. They're, 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 I do think it relied maybe a little too much on CG monkeys. <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. There was practical stuff. And yeah, Brian, like you said, it's, there, there is a lot of things in there that are reminiscent of old Spielberg, like him, his glory days. But, the, you know, I, I don't know. It's just him back in franchise mode was a kind of a different attitude as opposed to what he was uh, churning out at the time. Oh, yeah. And I, I definitely, mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I definitely. Going into. No, go ahead, Daniel. Going into Sorry. That, yeah, going into that, you had AI, my note report, catch me if you can, Terminal, War of the Worlds, Munich. Then you get to Crystal Skull. And then after that, it's Tintin, War Horse in 2011, Lincoln 2012. Bridge of Spies, 2015. Uh, BFG. BFG, 2016, a film that I have not seen since I saw it in theaters. Post in 2017. How is that already five years old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Ready Player One in March yeah. of 2018. And thanks to the pandemic, we had to wait a few years for uh, Fablements. And West Side Story. Oh, yeah, and West Side Story yeah. last year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I when I own it on digital and not physical, I mean, it's hard to remember its place in the timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and especially because of the fact that in the past decade, he really has leaned in, with the exception of Tintin and Ray Player One, he really has just gone almost com- entirely in on serious filmmaking and serious subjects for his filmmaking, whether something like Bridge of Spies or... The Post or War Horse or then West Side Story and Fablemans, you know, and I I think that is I you know, in in that way I do kind of see where Jason is coming from when he says he's not really a populist filmmaker anymore. But at the same time, you look at those movies and you can kind you still see this is a Spielberg approach to those stories. Like, it's not the same approach that somebody is going to take because he's he's still ultimately, okay, we're going to put Tom Hanks in this Cold War film, you know, and it's going to be a bit, you know, it's going to be a bit different than you're used to from me, but it's ultimately going to be a Tom Hanks movie as much as it is a Spielberg movie. You know, with The Post, it's not going to be necessarily all the presence men the way that played out. You're going to get allusions to it, but at the same time, it's it's the way I would have approached a story like All the President's Men, you know. And West Side Story, I do think there is something, I mentioned in my review for Fablemans, I do think there is something to basically what Spielberg is probably going to end up doing for the rest of his career is looking back at his childhood and what excited him about movies you know and you look at west side story he chose that musical to make his first real musical you know he's telling his personal story on screen with fablemans and then you know he's talked about doing a western coming up next he's got a bullet movie with bradley cooper which i'm not sure i would have gone with him as a choice but i'm curious to see what 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 they come up with with that. And, you know, I I can imagine what we're going to see from Spielberg is him tapping into some genres and types of stories that he's wanted to 
scratched that itch for a while. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm curious about that. So. Well, I still think he's tapping into things from his childhood, the same way he was tapping into things from his childhood with Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I just think, and again, hate to say, hate to say that Jason is right, but you know, he's, it's just not connecting with audiences the same way. I think that's yeah. the difference. He's still making the same type of movie, the same kind of West Side stories, very him, like you just said. Um, but people just aren't connecting to that in the same way they would have connected to an Indiana Jones or uh, uh, Jaws or Close Encounters that, or E.T., the movies that kind of ring that box office bell. They're, it's hard to I can't pinpoint it, but audiences just have their mindset in a different spot. I can't pinpoint that precisely, but I think that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So before we get into our personal favorites of Spielberg's career, I did want to uh, take some time to talk about the Fablemans a bit. And, you know, one of the things I I knew from the first trailer of the, this movie coming out, it was going to, it was going to have a profound impact on me. And certainly it, did that in spades because of the fact that the story of not only Sammy Fableman learning to love movies and decide he wants to make movies, but also the dynamic that we see play out with his family and the ways in which his parents have two different, are two different types of people. You know, his mother Mitzi is a musician, very creative. His father, Bert, is very scientifically oriented and very intellectually oriented. And he's he's not the strong emotional caregiver that Mitzi is. But we see Sammy just become fascinated by film for the first time with that that moment where they watch the great show on earth and you, you know, it's like, I'm sure we've all had that moment where we're just like dumbstruck by what a movie does. And for Sammy, it's that train crash and he has to, he has to recreate because of the fact that he wants to, he, he wants to figure out what I feel like part of it is, he wants to figure out what was that impacted him so much about that. And he kind of wants to break it down for himself. And then, you know, we we see him want to tell more stories, want to tell deeper stories, and then we see him eventually starting to realize his camera is seeing something more than what he expected. And it's something that eventually will haunt the family for the the next few years as they move from place to place. And this is this this was a movie that I, I mean I absolutely adored this movie. I I was all the way on board with it. Uh what what are were and we'll we'll start with Danielle because she was fortunate enough to be at the world premiere of this movie in Toronto. In something she that, knows how jealous I am of her. Yeah, she knows. I, 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 I'm, compl- <laughs> I'm not jealous at all. You know, at, at all. Not, not jealous at all. But um, we'll start with Danielle. And first of all, I, I, we haven't really talked about, it, but 
what was the what was the feeling like not only being in the room with Spielberg watching that film, but what was the audience like watching that film? Well, I mean, there were standing ovations at the beginning and end. I mean, it was surreal. I mean, I had to uh, rush out of Glass Onion almost as soon as the Q&A started <laughs> because, one, I had to go to the restroom, and two, I needed to get back in line for Fablements because they clear out the house before the uh, next film begins. Mm-hmm. And so I remember going at, going up to the balcony to uh, get to my seat, and they're already starting on introductions. And you... And you still have more people in line that are trying to get inside at that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just so surreal to be at the uh, world premiere of the first Toronto film directed by, well, my favorite living uh, filmmaker. What was the, the what was the audience reaction to the? You said standing ovations, but like yeah. throughout the movie, were they how involved? I mean, uh, there were uh, definitely laughs at the uh, funny scenes. I mean, I was starting to laugh uncontrollably, it's uncontrollably, uncontrollably as soon as he says that uh, our house is the only house uh, without lights. Because <laughs> it's so true when you grow up Jewish. Your house is the only house without lights. Unless you live in a very Jewish neighborhood, at which point it's not going to be the only house without lights. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I didn't even realize that was David Lynch at the end. I thought that was Stephen making a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely remember. Only- yeah, I definitely remember David Lynch was cameoing in that movie. And I'd heard that was probably John Ford, but I wasn't completely sure. But yeah, like it wasn't until I uh, reread my review of the uh, McBride bio on Spielberg that I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. He didn't sneak off of a uh, studio tour tram ride. He actually had an appointment. I mean, that was one of those things that was like myth, but I mean, so much of the film is based on Spielberg's life. Although I was reading recently that uh, the Christian girlfriend was actually fictional. Hmm. And of course that may have been some people not remembering a girlfriend. I don't know. But I mean, either way, like you had to have some drama other than uh, being picked on uh, in high school because of being Jewish. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so sad that that is just as timely now Mm -hmm. as it was as when he was in high school. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I I definitely remember uh, reading reviews like uh, yours and uh, other people's when it was after played in um, Toronto and definitely definitely the fact that um you know the uh anti-semitism he he goes through in high school was playing a part in uh the movie and it's it it's it's something that i certainly cannot speak to myself but it's like i i just can't imagine what you know i i can't imagine what that's like and one of the things that really hit me when i watched it was just how much he didn't really flinch from it. You know, it's still, it, it's, 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 it's as uncomfortable and is in a way harrowing to watch that as 
in a way, anything we see in Schindler's List when it comes to the ways that uh, the Jewish people are Jewish people are dehumanized by uh, bigots, and it's it's just really it it's it's something that really does land with you pretty hard, and it's one of those things that he he is able to do that. I think in a way that makes is able to make somebody like me who hasn't gone through that really feel that in in a way that is intense, but also, for lack of a better word, accessible. Darren, what, are, what were uh, your thoughts when uh, you watched the movie for the first time? Well, again, I just saw this recently, so it's, it's still processing. Like it's, uh, and I think that's a sign of a, of a good, or a great movie. Uh, the thing with like again, sorry to keep bringing Marvel back into this, but the thing the way that culture is now, and when we have like Wikipedia and access to all those things, like again, when I was growing up, I, we didn't have those things. So if you wanted to find out what happened in a movie, you didn't even have the internet, so you couldn't. Spoilers wasn't even like you had to rely on like a friend who happened to see a movie before you. So now that we have all these access to things, again with Marvel movies, I've become so jaded with them that I, I I'll read the the Wikipedia plot description because I don't the plots aren't what's important to me about those movies. It's the connection between the characters and the fun that they have. And you can't read that, so that doesn't spoil the book. But the way that the culture is, you can watch, you can read these movies, and so there's less of a like a drive for me to go out and watch these things. But there are movies like um, like a Dark Knight Rises, or like a you know uh, these bigger blockbusters, like the Last Harry Potter, or something like that. It's, it's all these things that I that I won't read the spoilers for, that I want to go and experience myself. With Fablemans, it was the same thing to the point, and I even tweeted about it when the first trailer came out. I was like, I'm not watching this. I'm muting this word because I don't want to know anything about this movie. I want to go in cold. I know it's Spielberg. I know he's making a movie about his childhood. I'm going to love it. There's just something that I know, unless he takes a really disastrous turn, I'm going to end up liking this movie a lot. And I specifically remember sitting in the theater for Ticket to Paradise with my wife, and they had the trailer for The Fablemans come up, and I was like, damn it. I went. I made it all this way, but without seeing the trailer. And now I had to watch it. And I was like, yeah, I guess we're going to have to sit but again, Fablemans is a movie that I had to go out and see, and I purposely didn't read anything about it. I didn't want to know the plot because I wanted to be surprised by it and involved it because, again, Spielberg is that filmmaker. And I, and I talk about this with Jaws all the time, like I said. I've, so it's not like I'm just coming this, with this out of the blue, but from the very first frames, when Mitzi's trying to figure out why does he need to film these things, and she says he needs to control it. And I almost started crying in the theater. So I was like, there's another connection to Spielberg because that's the same way that I watched Jaws. That's the same way that I fell in love with movies. His greatest show on earth is my, Jaws is the you know, greatest show on earth. It's equated to that because that's what fascinated him with. And I had to control my feelings for it. Why did this movie involve me so much? And again, just thinking about it now makes me emotional because it's like, how does this guy know who I am? <laughs> like how how do i know and again i'm not uh, of the jewish faith danielle that's one of the things that i absolutely adore about you is you, that's part of your identity and you will you will not budge from that if something like is not doesn't tie in and, and offend you in a way you're able to step away and say i'm not going to be involved in it i love that you're able to do that that's so brave and so and so i love that that's part of your identity as a film critic i don't have that same kind of thing i'm half chinese but i look more white so i never had to deal with like any kind of somebody looking at me in a different way because I could pass for a white dude. You know, you know, so I never had that. But that personal stuff with filmmaking, the way that Spielberg is still able to, to attack, like you, Danielle, from a different way, you, Brian, from a different way, that's what The Fablemans does. I, 
I kind of push back a little bit at these movies that are about filmmakers' childhoods because in a way they seem a little bit self-indulgent, you know, mm-hmm. making a movie about myself. So you look at 400 Blows or Fanny and Alexander or Crooklyn of all things, or I think Lady Bird just recently, you have uh, Belfast or Roma or all these things that, there's just something about these movies that I push back a little bit because it's like you're getting a little bit too high on yourself. Like, so I, I don't know, it's just part, so I'm still processing that. But again, so much stuff, seeing how um, uh, Mitzi is able to, like you said, Brian, she's the emotional part. That's the emotional side Right. The way that Bert is the logical, technical person. From the very first shots of the movie, when you have Bert bend, they're trying to convince little Sammy to go in to see this movie, right? And they're trying to explain it's not scary. And you get the first close-ups of Bert, Paul Dano was Bert. It's like, listen, it's all made from technical. You see it frame by frame, and so it's presented in a way. And then it cuts and shows a close-up of Michelle Williams as Mitzi. She's like, but the feelings are So I just thought that was so brilliant a way to introduce those characters and it paid off for the entire movie. I just think mm-hmm. that from that perspective and at the end with the, with the personal movies, I don't know if they reach a climax. Like I guess the climax of the Fablemans is, you know, he's realizes, yeah, I need to be a filmmaker. I can get through to the bullies, the anti-Semite. I still have a way to, to, you know, connect to them in a way. And so he, he connects with that, but then he has the scene with Mitzi where they have their makeup session. They're able to resolve things. And then it cuts later and it has the scene with Bert and Bert's like, you know what? I'm done pushing back. If, if you don't want to go to school, don't go to school. I, I probably should have stepped on your hobbies a long time ago, but I didn't. And so even Bert has that reconciliation with him. I just thought that all that stuff, to the point where the John Ford thing is like the dessert. You've gone yeah. through this whole movie, and it's just five to ten minutes of just pure joy. And so just just laughing. Even the... Even the last shot of the end, you know how, how John Ford says about the horizon, when the shot is too low and it settles, I laughed out loud. I just thought that was so clever. There's just so much in this movie to love. But, you know, there's that personal stuff from filmmaking or from your faith that you grow up with. There's something to identify with this, this movie that, again, I don't think that a lot of filmmakers, I, I, I don't know if I know who Fincher is watching a Fincher movie, but I know who Spielberg is watching a Spielberg movie. I yeah. know who Ingmar Bergman is watching an Ingmar Bergman movie, Fellini. I know who they are from what they're presenting. That's something that's so rare. It's something that Spielberg has, like maybe above all. Well, and he, he and Scorsese are the same way. And I, I saw something on Twitter, I think this past week, and I've been thinking about since watching the Fable Men's words, like, you know, you, you would normally, you know, it's funny that between Scorsese and Spielberg when it comes to making movies about childhood and about the discovery of the imaginative or film, whether it's filmmaking or magic or finding connections between people, you know, Scorsese arguably made the more fanciful one with Hugo and Spielberg made the more serious one with Fablemans where normally you would think those were reversed. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's funny because of the fact that I did, I did wonder watching the Fableman's trailer, and I, I mentioned it at the time, I wondered how much this might be inspired by the Antoine Duenel films that Truffaut did. And Truffaut famously, of course, worked with Spielberg as an actor on Close Encounters. And so, but the funny thing is, it's like I rewatched 400 Blows after watching Fablemans, and you don't really see that. You don't really see that in 
what Spielberg is doing and what he's doing is personal in a very different way than what I think Truffaut did. I mean, in a way you can kind of see the same type of personality that Antoine Bonnell is in Sammy Fableman, especially when the character's older and played by Gabrielle Le- LaBelle in what I think is one of the better uh, younger performances Spielberg's directed, which is saying something considering the degree of considering how well he's always been when it comes to uh, directing children. But, you know, it's it's funny because of the fact that I just watched Cinema Paradiso for the first time this week. And the thing that I love about that and the thing that I love about the Fablemans is that they're not specifically about... Yeah, I mean, Fablemans is ultimately about... a. Uh, a child who realizes he wants to be a film director. But what we see more in Fablemans is the nurturing and the love of filmmaking, of film, of and sharing film. And some of my favorite moments in the Fablemans is the experience of watching Sammy share his films with other people whether it's his scout troop, whether it's the high school, whether it's his high school classmates on the skip day film, him sharing his films are, it's some of my favorite stuff in the entire film. And it, I, I love that, you know, it is indulgent if a filmmaker is telling a story about a filmmaker wanting to make movies. It's kind of, it's pretty indulgent in that respect. But I don't necessarily think that's what Spielberg's doing here. And that's part of the reason why this, I think, connects to with me more than some of those some of the other movies that are about that same type of subject. Well, that's the difference too. Again, I don't the way I approach movies is I'm gonna approach them from my personal perspective. Like I can't expect you to like Brian or Danielle to approach it the same way that I do. That's what makes us interesting as voices, right? Uh, the Fableman stuff, yeah, it, it, it's self-indulgent. That's why I push back a little bit, but it does have that wider context. I love the uh, the different ways in the movie that he's he. It shows the different effect that movies have on people, right? To the point where he shows his mom the shots of her cheating, you know, emotionally, physically, whatever, with Benny, and the way that you don't see the footage because I've seen it before, but you see it on Mitzi's face and the way that the movie that she's watching affects her in a way that changes everything between them and helps them connect. The way that he shows, uh, what was the name of the, uh, the bully? I can't remember his name, but Logan, right? Was that his name? Logan, the main I think bully. so. The way that he's able to connect, and I love that scene where Logan comes out and is like, why did you do this? I've treated you like shit this whole time and you made me look like a god. Like, why would you do that? And Sammy's like... I don't know, man. It's just the way that I do it. I don't know why I did it. I just do. And it comes out the way that he the way that Logan is able to see himself as a God, even though that's not how he sees himself eternally. Again, that's the stuff that's great. The stuff where Mitzi says, you don't owe anybody your life, right? The part where uh, Boris, the Judd Hirsch character says, you're going to be wrestling with this your whole life, your passion versus your family. They're going to be fighting. So there are more universal themes than just this is Spielberg making a Spielberg. I don't, I don't want to denigrate that. I'm just saying that, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes it's just a little bit, it's a little bit indulgent, but it still has a lot of things. in it. Yeah, absolutely. Danielle, what are some of your uh, thoughts on uh, some of the things, whether some of the things we're talking about or some of the things that you 
really uh, came to love about the film. Ah, I mean, there, there's a lot to enjoy, but I mean, if it, if the horizon's at the top of the screen, it's interesting. <laughs> if it's at the bottom of the screen, it's interesting. If it's at the middle of the screen, it's as boring as shit. <laughs> yeah, my parents saw the film uh, yesterday, and so uh, after they got home, I called, and I'm like, and I go through that entire thing. I mean, it plays so beautifully on second and watch. Mm-hmm. I've not got around to my third viewing yet, but I'm getting there. It's just trying to get through this initial cram that is the uh, first ballot deadline on December 9th. Yeah. yeah. A lot of movies to watch, so it's hard to yeah. dive back into certain things. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. There's so much to watch. Mm-hmm. They w- and they wait until Thanksgiving weekend to either mail out the screeners uh-huh. or right after Thanksgiving to screen these last batch of uh, films. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must have been at the theater, uh, had four screenings uh, left this past week, and it would have been five, but I'm like, no, I'll just take a screener for the other one. <laughs> After sitting through a three-hour, eight-minute film, I'm like, I need a break. Yeah. Well, especially especially <laughs> yeah, considering... You had, and you had an interesting Babylon experience. Yeah, you <laughs> mean the fact that was... Getting into the review. Yeah, you you mean the you you mean the fact that it was an hour and twenty minutes late from starting because the theater got sent the wrong file. I mean, at least I got to see it because if uh, you know if if it had been film, I wouldn't have gotten to see it at all. So it's like yeah. okay, uh, you know, <laughs> but I uh, yeah, I mean you know I I'm this is gonna come out before the embargo, so I'm not gonna say anything about my thoughts on that one, but um. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I had that and I had the whale basically back to back. So, um, yeah, I and plus my regular workload's just been an absolute uh beast this this past few weeks because of the fact that we're down people and, you know, during the holidays a lot of people you kind of need to be able to be open to watch have people watch <laughs> movies. But no, I no, I I adore that scene with John David Lynch's John Ford. It's it's like I I could seriously I could imagine Spielberg and Lynch just grinning from ear to ear, filming that scene. Like okay, so here here's what we're gonna do, and it was <laughs> it was it was just so it's such a fun move, such a fun scene to watch, and it's such a great way to end it because of the fact that it's like like you said, Darren, it is basically the the dessert at the end of everything else and cherry on top. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, one of my favorite scenes is, you know, tying into the John Ford is when they're watching, uh, when they go in to watch the man who shot Liberty Valance. And I love that. The reason I love that scene is because of the fact that they're all of his friends are talking about, Sammy basically striking out with this one girl and all Sammy wants to do is watch the movie, you know, and him <laughs> going over the seats to get away from them. It's like, leave me alone. I want to watch the movie. <laughs> it's like, I absolutely love that. But yeah, I, you know, it's like when you, when you said that the uh, non-Jewish girl was, uh, was a fabrication that that's, that's interesting. They would have that. But at the same time, I, I think she and I talked about it when we when I talked about uh the female characters in the Fablemans for in their own league yesterday. 
she does end up playing an important part because of the fact that she ultimately is what gets him back to making films. Because after he sees what he sees with his with Mitzi and Benny, he he goes into a depression about the idea of making movies and he just doesn't want to do it. And so, and I love the dinner where it's like, she says, Oh, my, my father has access to this. And it's like, you see him perk up. And this is part of the reason why I love LaBelle's performance. It's just such a natural moment of like, just somebody perking up where it's like, huh? Okay. I, I might be interested in doing that. And then the way he, the, the way that whole thing goes. And it's like, I, I love that the, I love that the trailer gives off the impression of one movie, but the movie is very much not ultimately wedded to a lot of what the trailer is. Uh, and you, you kind of get this idea of what certain things are going to play like in the trailer, but that's not what it is in the movie. And I, I, I just absolutely, I, I love this movie. I, I'm, I'm jealous that you've already seen it twice, Danielle. I can't, wait to see it again. I, I will probably just end up buying on VOD on the 13th because I don't know if I'm going to get to it again in theaters. But uh, yeah, it's it's such it's such a wonderful movie. Yeah, I'll wait for physical media or digital copy whenever they uh, send out review codes, whichever comes first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a matter of which publicist uh, sends it out. Yeah. Because I've once handled a few for Universal and Focus, and so I'm getting taken to Paradise physically. If I get Fablemans physically, that's great. If I get a digital copy, uh, well, that means not having to worry about finding the space in the Spielberg bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, you know, one. She's showing it to us. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which also includes uh, Star Wars and. Duel and, and Sugarland Express are in the pile on top, as is the new uh, anniversary copy of uh, E.T. Mm-hmm. and the 40th anniversary of uh, uh, Close Encounters on 4K. Oh, oh nice. Which I just upgraded. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just rewatched Close Encounters today for uh, something I'm writing for in their own league. And um, yeah, I, I forgot... Man, that movie moves so quickly when I watched it. It was the original version. I I have seen, I don't re- remember if I've ever seen the 1980 special edition, but I did watch the kind of quote-unquote director's guy he did in like 98, which kind of is a mix of the two. And, you know, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but ever since watching it on the uh, big screen five years ago when they re-released it for the 40th, it's like, now I'll probably just stick with the theatrical. Um, and I think, and I mentioned this on the League podcast yesterday, I, one of my favorite, um, but it t- kind of ties into the Fablemans, one of my favorite pieces of uh, trivia when it comes to Spielberg is when James Lipton on Inside the Actors Studio uh, yes. mentioned to him that, you know, is it interesting that you know, was it a conscious decision to use music as the way to talk to the aliens in Close Encounters considering your mother's a pianist and your father's a computer scientist? And it's like, oh, wow, I didn't necessarily think about that. 
But yeah. I, you know, it's funny because watching and one of the things that I do love about the Fablemans is, you know, there are little quotations. There are things that you can see that he obviously borrowed from for previous for films that he would make later. But it's not a film about that. It's not just him going, oh, here, here's something that will remind you of this. Here's something that will remind you of this, which, you know, is is the type of thing that we we see too often in certain films. And, uh, yeah. It's all Ready Player One is, really, if you think about it. <laughs> I... I I I I feel like I'm probably the biggest fan of that movie between the three of us, but I I I completely understand why it doesn't resonate with people. I I completely understand that. Um, I I well, I do think there. If only I didn't have an abuser in it, my feelings would be that that is that is that is correct. Yes, I I yes, yeah. It's a it's it's one of those things where. You know, and I, I do want we because we haven't brought him up at this point, uh, and that is John Williams, which is Spielberg's arguably Spielberg's greatest collaborator. Uh, this is possibly it's quite looking quite very much looking like the final film they will work on together. He's work he's done music on all but five of Spielberg's efforts as a feature director. And I love that he went small with this one. It's very it I've been listening to the score almost on repeat like for week the past couple of weeks since I saw the movie. And it's such a beautiful and simple score. I love that it's piano based, which is, you know, a reflection of his, you know, the fact that it's, his mother was a pianist. And it's it's just such a beautiful score, and it's a great way. If it is the last score he does for Spielberg, it's it's a wonderful, simple way to go out for him. Yeah, it's a lovely piano-based score. I love those types of scores. Yeah. So uh, with that, um, I want to wrap up this discussion by having us go through our five favorite Spielberg films. And these aren't necessarily in terms of the ones we think are the best, unless you want to go that way. These are the ones that uh, probably, I would say, connect with us or have connected with us either more than we necessarily expected or more than anything else. I mean, I, I think there's certainly a wealth of movies here to cover and I, I i have a feeling between the three of us we're we're gonna go over quite a bit of his filmography so i'd like to start with our fifth choices i'd like to start with danielle what would you say is your fifth favorite spielberg movie jaws <laughs> the the original blockbuster i i i love i love jaws and it's like it's it's such a fun movie what a, what about it is uh what about it uh has you has has you have it at that position i've got like let's see either 12 or 13 or 14 films that i put with five stars <laughs> that's out of a 30 plus filmography mm -hmm. 
It is not easy to rank these things. No. <laughs> no, it isn't. E.T. is my, no, ET is my number six, and Close Encounters is my number seven. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to the Fable, it's a number eight. Already there, good. <laughs> yeah, Last Crusade, nine, Lincoln, ten. This is not an easy thing to rate. Yeah. But what is it? But what, what do you enjoy about Jaws? It changed the game for blockbusters. Before then, you had films that would open New York, LA, eventually platform. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it really changed the game. And then George Lucas would change it again a few years later with Star Wars. And then you get to Jurassic Park in 93, and filmmaking would never be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love Jaws. It's, it's not in my top five, but I, you know, it's like when, especially when you have uh, Brody, Hooper, and Quint on the uh, Orca, it's like that, that stretch of film is, it, it's such a great slow burn of suspense because of the fact that you just don't necessarily know when the shark is coming. And the the fact that John, John Williams made that shark terrifying with just a handful of notes, it is it it is filmmaking of the highest order. Uh, Darren, what is your number five? Well, just to preface, my number, like you're talking about what we think is our favorites versus the best. Like I arrange them according to like again, my number one. There's going to be arguments that it might be one of his worst. Like the arguments can be made. I. Whenever I organize lists, I have to organize them from a personal perspective, how they affect me the most. So my my top three definitely tie into making me who I am, but it's also fascinating watching movies that are extremely personal to him and then just feeding off of that. So for number five, I've got Schindler's List. Not because, you know, you've got his populist movies like we talked about. I just think that, again, this is the movie that he still applied that blockbuster mentality to this movie about, like, World War II and concentration camps the way that he broke all of his traditions that he had on screen, like sticking to storyboards, there are reports that if it didn't work after a certain, he just would, would not do it and just move on to the next thing. So just, you know, the filmmaking, the black and white filmmaking, the way that the, the girl in the pink coat comes in and, and kind of tricks your eyes. So you don't know if that's really what you're looking at. Just the masterful way to do that. Watching this with a packed theater and seeing it affect people and people just sobbing, um, to the point where the only time this has ever happened in a movie, when the movie stopped, you know how it is. You see when you guys go see a, a movie, people will get up and they'll leave when the credits start. For Sindler's List, the only time I've ever experienced this, nobody moved. Everybody sat until the lights came up. And I think it's because the movie affected them that much. I've never seen that before. I've never seen it since. But it's the power of that filmmaking how Spielberg, Daniel, like you talked about, it tore something out of him to the point he was just broken. And Robin Williams had to come in every night and tell him jokes just to boost his spirits back. And it tore that much from him. So I, in a way, I would say that Schindler's List is probably because, you know, his, his Jewish upbringing on all these things. And I think that this might be his most personal movie. So that's definitely why it earns that spot. Yeah, I... I, I... I just rewatched uh, Schindler's List yesterday in preparation for this. Plus, it's, you know, I, I do try to revisit it every few years because of the fact that um, for a movie with as har- harrowing a subject as it is, it's, 
it it's an eminently watchable film in the way that Spielberg crafts it. You know, I mean, one of the thing I I remember Roger Ebert when he wrote about it, or his uh, great movies reviewed. Like one of Spielberg's gifts is, or at least at the time was, you know, making a movie in a way that millions of people wanted to see it, telling a story in a way millions of people wanted to see it, and he the way that he approaches the story of Oscar Schindler and the way I, there are, there are moments of this movie where he disarms you at times. Like there are moments of really sly humor in here. I mean, especially when it comes to Schindler and his wife and the fact that it's like, his his wife goes, you know, tell me that I will never be, you know, tell me I will never be uh, mistaken for someone else by a bell man again, and I'll stay. And then next thing we see, she's in a car leaving. Uh, but but the fact is, it's like even we we get to see such a wealth of humanity, even in the face of the horrificness of the Nazis. And Amin Geth. And there are so many rich performances in this movie. It's not just Liam Neeson and Ray Fiennes and Ben Kingsley. And Beth Dividitz is great. Caroline Goodall has great moments in this. The, the individuals who are playing some of the Jewish characters that we follow throughout the film, it's, it's just you remember faces. You remember moments with all of them and it it just builds to this impact that it is it is something that you just can't help but be in awe of by the end of it yeah the, the only last thing i'll say in Schindler's, i don't know if danielle wants that or if that, that's something she's going to talk about but you know what i spielberg i think at the time was facing some criticism because jurassic park i think the three main characters weren't that developed like they were just kind of one note away and so like hook and everything that people were criticizing him for i think schindler's list kind of feeds into that because oscar you you don't really understand what he's doing to the point you just know he's doing the right thing to the point where at the end even he doesn't know why he did it i love that he's confronted by all the the jews and the the people that he saved and the families and he's confronted and he's like I, but I could have done more. And he breaks down. How emotional mm-hmm. is that scene? Like, and they have to calm him down. They say, look, what you have done has saved generate. And again, <laughs> I get emotional thinking about that. It's just, he's just doing this because he knows it was good. He's inherently good. And he becomes good, like in other ways as the movie goes. But just that idea of just being a good person to be a good person, that's so rare. And, and just watching him break down and realize that he could have saved just one more person, but even you're watching, you're like, but look how many people you did save, man. Like, let's not focus on that. I just think that's really, that's really powerful stuff. I will get to more on Schindler's in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So my, so my number five is actually Lincoln. The reason mm-hmm. I'm putting Lincoln so high is because of the fact that I, one of the things that he does in that movie that is so extraordinary is he makes the passage of a bill riveting and all of the, and all of the horse wheel and all of the wheeling and dealing that goes involved with it. 
and you you have all you have this tension that it's one of those great things that great historical movies about really well-known subjects you know this is often said about titanic it's like well we know how titanic ends how is this going to be interesting and it's like well let james cameron tell you and that i think is the same thing with spielberg here and it's it's not just the daniel day lewis performance it's not just the tommy lee jones performance it's the fact that you understand from the second that from from the second that Lincoln starts to speak about what makes this such an important thing. He's doing this it's not it's not a personal thing for him. He's doing this because he has taken the oath to to defend this country and if this is what he has to do to do it, he is going to do it. And I love that even up until the very end, you are in a certain degree of suspense as far as how is this going to get done? And you see the relief on people, on the faces of people affected by this. And I, it, it's one of those movies that makes politics interesting and doesn't make it feel like a history lesson. And I that's that's one of the things that is so just profound about Lincoln. And every time I find myself I find myself so entertained by it, which is really weird to say about a movie about the Civil War, about the aboli- about an amendment to abolish slavery. But it is a movie that is entertaining, and that's that's one of those things that you just do not expect to get from a from any film about that subject. Well, I wanted to thank you about talking about it though, because I've been thinking about Lincoln when I put together a top ten Spielberg list. I was like, is is Lincoln only ranking so high for me because that Daniel Day Lewis performance is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen on a screen? Like, I don't. He, he stops being Daniel Day Lewis for me from frame one. I don't know how he like that performance. I'm just in awe of that. Just the way you can see all his thought processes. But I was thinking, is that all that it was? But you're right. It's like I think a lot of us when we grow up in, in high school or, or you know or education from elementary on, we just think that Lincoln said, you know what, I want to abolish slavery, and it was done. Right? We don't know about like you said all this wheeling and dealing and all the politics he had to his book, and that's a big um, testament to Kushner's script for Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So we was able to keep that up in the air. But again, it's a testament to Spielberg being able to make it, like you said, so entertaining. So again, thank you for talking about that because I, you forget that there are some other things going on besides what's just what you said. Yeah, like, I mean, watching Lincoln's Dilemma on Apple TV uh, Plus earlier this year, it adds an entirely uh, new layer uh, to the fight against uh, slavery. Even you have Frederick Douglass, who's pretty much writing to Lincoln or visiting Lincoln, trying to make him better when it comes to fighting slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all that. Yeah. So, Danielle, what is your number four favorite Spielberg? Raiders of the Lost Ark, or <laughs> as it's called uh, in recent years, Indiana Jones uh, and the oh, Raiders no. of the Lost yeah. Ark. <laughs> no, I, I refuse to accept that. Yep. I, I refuse to accept that. Nope. 
I and, still call Star Wars Star Wars. <laughs> I don't call it a new hope. <laughs> if if I'm if I'm talking about within the context of the uh Star Wars series, I'll call it a new hope. But yeah, it is basically just Star Wars for me. Um no, I, I love Raiders. I mean, is is one of the iconic film adventures of all time. Uh what what is it about you that you that you you love it, Danielle? It's what it's a fun movie. Two the Nazis get their ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean honestly those those are the two best reasons to lovers of Lost Ark. Three Harrison Ford. Yeah. It it is basically the definitive Harrison Ford role. I mean, it really is. I mean, I was certainly more familiar with him. I I was definitely more Star Wars person, but now I mean, you you think of him, you think of more Indiana Jones. And yeah, yeah. that that movie just it I I rewatched it last year for the 40th anniversary and it it just continues to play like gangbusters. And it it moves from minute to minute, and it is just wonderful. Do you have anything on it, or are we going to be hearing about a few? My number four is actually Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. (laughs) We can just feed right into the conversation. Again, it it ties in, Daniel, like you said, with with punching Nazis. It ties in with that Schindler's List thing. I think there's a trajectory to my top five. But if you're looking at action, first of all, you're looking at action movies. I don't think there's a movie out there that has beat Raiders of the Lost Ark. The thing that we haven't talked about on this podcast so far is how Spielberg is a master at action sequences, the way that he's able to have such clear geography. And again, I'm not just spitballing because he said this is important to him. The way we know who the players are, the way we know what they're up against, the way we know what the, the vehicles they're in or the horses that they're mounting or, or what position they are on in the desert or you know, even on the side of a building like in Minority Report or, or Ready Player One, even though I don't really enjoy that movie, there's still that command of the screen where everything is in the middle of the screen and you can tell what's going on even though it's complete chaos. Raiders of the Lost Ark has that. I don't know if I'm more energized or excited by any action scene in any movie that's ever been made. It's just his command of the medium. If you're talking about Harrison Ford, I don't think there's a greater hero in cinema than Indiana Jones because mm-hmm. he's fallible. He makes mistakes. He's he's willing to be silly. He's ends up you know, failing a lot of the time, but he's just, he keeps going at it. He keeps going at it until he succeeds. There's just something so admirable about Indiana Jones as a character to the point where, even though I'm disappointed where it's Frank Marshall directing Dial of Destiny as opposed to Spielberg, when that trailer came out, when they start playing that Raiders theme, another testament to Williams, I got teary-eyed. <laughs> just you mean James Mangold? No, yeah, sorry, James, who did I say? I Frank said, Marshall. Said Frank. Frank Marshall, sorry, Frank Marshall was another officer. Yeah, James Mangold. I'm sorry. Like, I don't really <laughs> attach Mangold to Spielberg. Again, you know, you know what I'm saying. It's like, even though I didn't have that, Spielberg was able to make a connection with Indiana Jones that's indelible, no matter who directs it, you know, whether it's Zemeckis or Mangold or Marshall, anything like that. I just think that it's, again, indelible. The, it's iconic moments. It's great as the last time. Everything. I, I, I respect Frank Marshall, but I do not want the director of Congo making an Indiana Jones, directing yeah, an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> um, 
Now, I mean, we we we've talked about, it. and actually, I mean, it's funny. My my number four is an Indiana Jones movie, but it's actually Last Crusade, um, okay. and it boils down to just absolutely being in love with the opening with River Phoenix. I every time I watch that, I, it makes me miss him, but it also makes me grateful for the moments we had with him. I love the dynamic of. Harrison Ford and Sean Connery, you completely believe that they're father and son by the way they interact with one another. Yes, it's Nazis again, but I love the fact that it's a different sort of adventure for Indy, and it's it's a fun adventure for Indy as well. Yes, you get Marcus Brody being a bit of a sillier character in this time. Yeah, you have Salo being a bit of a sillier character, but at the same time, I, I, I enjoy the way that this is, this is about a father and son basically connecting after years apart. And I mean, certainly there's that personal angle because of the fact that, you know, there, there certainly been tons of movies where, you know, you either have an absentee father or a fractured relationship between father and son and Spielberg. But, um, I I love that you you really do feel that this is this is one that's important to him and I you enjoy I enjoy the way that the script by Jeffrey Bowen goes about its business. I love the John Williams music and this movie just ends on such a note to where if that had been the last Indiana Jones movie, you would be fine with it because of the fact that it has him riding off into the sunset. And I was fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um now, so my uh, my number four is Last Crusade. Good one. I think it's great, great, a great audience. And after Temple of Doom, they had to lighten it up. Mm-hmm. Because I mean Temple of the Doom is one of the darkest movie. Oh, it is the darkest movie in that franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh Daniel, what is your number three movie? Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was this was the last movie my dad watched in the theater. He he wasn't big into movies, but he we did get him to see that one. I uh, for around my birthday one year, my my parents, my grandfather, and I went to go see this. My everybody but my dad had already gone to see it, and it's it's just one of those movies where. You know, a lot of people have issues with the bookends. I get it. It's like, yeah, it's sappy, it's sentimental, but at the same time, I I think that what Spielberg, I I do think it's an important part of the storytelling. And yeah, I mean, it may not necessarily make a lick of sense when it comes to you know usually the bookending characters going to be with us from beginning to end of the narrative in between. But I I think it's. You know, I I think one of those, I think the thing that works about those is that it, it is, it's, you know, the earn this that Tom Hanks says at the end is, I I I feel like that's that's that Spielberg saying that to the audience. It's like earn the fact that these people fought and died for your freedom, and you know the the D Day sequence is just as 
extraordinary uh, sequence of film as anybody's put on screen. But I, the scene, the the battle scene at Ravel at the end is just as impactful. And I love the characters we get to meet. It's a great cast of characters, and the the sense of morality that we, uh, the questioning of the morality of you know, well, is is it worth eight lives to save one? You know, it's it's again Spielberg questioning. It's it's about Spielberg challenging us on these moral questions about life and death and sa- saving lives. You know, even though we may die in the process, and I I think it's 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 just really a fantastic movie. And you know, one of my one of my favorite scenes in it is is one that people don't really think about it. It's the scene after D-Day though, where we're in the typing pool and this, you know, they're typing the notices of uh, deaths to family members. And you focus in on this one typist who comes to realize, Oh wait, I've seen this name before. And then she, you follow her around the room and you, see her getting other ones and basically making the realization that, Oh my God, like all these, this one family has lost so much. And it's, it's just one of those scenes where it it's Spielberg at his most subtle, but also his most brilliant too. Well, Danielle, I want to get to, I have obviously thoughts on private Ryan, but why, why would this one rate? So what is it about private Ryan too, that you, that affects you? How does it affect you? I mean, for me, I mean, it's, that film should have won Best Picture in 98. <laughs> it should have. They were robbed. Yeah. Two, I mean, the sound design in the, uh, during those D-Day scenes, I mean, the first 25 minutes, there is no score. It took me until watching Making Waves a few, back in 2019, the documentary about sound design, that there was no score. Like, it's all action. <laughs> Yeah, that's something and I know I've Williams said a lot gets pushed back. Yeah. Which I don't have pulled up at the moment. I think Williams got pushed back a lot for being over sentimental with his music. I think that's a good thing with Fablemans as he pulls back a lot. There's no like real embellishment in the score, anything like that. But yeah, right. When it's funny because when the music starts, you're like, oh yeah, I'm watching a movie, right? <laughs> like you're you're so enraptured by that scene, and Spielberg is so good at the technical stuff. I think with Private Ryan, it just missed my top five. It's my number six. Just because, yeah, again, I don't mind the bookends, Brian, like you thought. I just think it, without them, I think it would have been a, bit, a little bit of a stronger movie. It would have been a little bit of more hard-hitting. Because the way that the movie ends without the last bookend, it, it kind of shakes you. And having the bookend, it, it makes you feel like you walk out of it feeling. I think that's the difference. That hmm. I would, It's easier to shake off in a way than Schindler's List was. But I got into trouble, like, last week because somebody was bad-mouthing Private Ryan because they couldn't get anything out of it. And they took, like, an anti-war stance. And I'm like, well, that's fine. But it's like, look, this movie was able to take, like, people that fought in the Vietnam War, people that fought in World War II, they were not able to talk about it with their families. There was a disconnect between their, the people that fought and their family. And Private Ryan spoke for them in a way that generations were like, and again, I said this and people made fun of me for it, but literally generations, even in my family, family members that have fought in the war, right? And having that connection. So I'm not just speaking out of my ass. 
when I say that. Generations were literally healed because grandfathers were able to talk to their sons and their daughters, and they were able, and grandfathers were able to talk to their granddaughters and their grandsons. And again, it's the it's the way that the movie was made. It's weird that somebody calls this like pro war. They said that oh, they treat this like if you die, like you deserve the highest honor. Like fighting, dying in war is the greatest thing to do. And yeah, but that's not it. It's about fighting for peace. It's about fighting for the quiet and earning fighting against fascism. It, yeah. yeah. Why is why are, why are people I mean, thinking I, it's I, I'd be curious. Uh, was that person Jewish or not Jewish? Because being someone who's Jewish, like I'm of the belief that we should have entered World War II before December 7, 1941. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We knew. And we, if you watch the U.S. and the Holocaust on PBS in September or via the PBS app, like you would know that the U.S. knew plenty and did not act on it when they needed to act. I mean, they knew in the summer of 1942 what Hitler was doing to Jews in Germany and in Europe and what the Nazis' plan was to exterminate the Jews of Europe. And they did not make that public until it leaked in the press in November of 1942. In fact, December 2nd, 1942 was declared by Jewish communities as an international day of mourning. At that point, one million Jews had already been murdered. And so way, to me, it, I mean, it's personal. Yeah, like, it is personal. I mean, I lost cousins in the Holocaust. I lost a great-great-grandmother in the Holocaust. But... The, the, again, the purview that this person is, I'm sorry, I'm getting so angry at this person because yeah. I know that it's like you have your right to your own opinion, but the purview that they're watching it from, from a distance and they weren't able to apply that, Danielle, to their lives, to other people's lives, the way they can't empathize with other people's experiences. Again, we were US, you look at, we're Oscar Schindler, we could have done more, except we didn't. Like we didn't intervene, we didn't yeah. stand and make a stand, right? Again, I don't understand why. And that's the disconnect we've been talking about this whole episode, is people are unable to see what Spielberg did to change the face of war, but also to change the face of how people looked at It's weird that people look at these movies and they're only able to see it from a surface-level perspective. It kind of, it drives me batty, and I know I got in trouble for it, but it's like, guys, you have to look, you have to cast a wider net than this. You have to look past your own stupid experience, your limited experience, in order to understand everything that's happening. Again, it's yeah, I could get angrier. <laughs> yeah, but believe you're, me. I mean, yeah, you're, you're... I, I had a lot of anger when I was writing my review Thursday night of the U.S. and the Holocaust, which I just ran Friday morning. Hmm. And that was, and I started, I pressed play before I even knew what was happening on InfoWars with Kanye West. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, believe me, that's an entirely different beast of <sighs> a subject. Yeah, and that's what these angry. yeah, that's what these soldiers are fighting for in this movie. They're fighting for something other than just making you feel good about yourself. I don't understand. I don't get. <laughs> I don't get that pushback. Well, and and the thing is, it's like you know, I don't know that I because I know you know, I know several people say, well, it's like any any war movie is anti-war. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I do think there's some movies made from a propaganda propaganda point of view that are celebrating war to a certain extent. But the fact Most is... Most of them starring like, John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, Gary Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But, Sergeant York. That was, I mean, they changed his uh, life story to an extent because uh, Warner Brothers was the only studio with balls when it came to uh, taking the fight on screen. Yeah. They were the only, I mean, everyone else is doing stuff behind the scenes, but Warner, they were putting it on screen. I mean, 
Sergeant York, that was propaganda because mm-hmm. they were trying to push the U.S. into entering World War II and fighting the Nazis. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but the thing is, it's like, no, what, what Private Ryan is doing is that it is... You don't have to be for war to at least acknowledge that there you don't you don't have you know just this is this is there's so much there's so many bad takes on movies it's like it it's brought up at least multiple times a week at how disintegrating the idea of media media literacy is uh, especially when we talk about online I mean that that take was a great example of it too. I I saw that one and it's like uh yeah no that's completely ridiculous. I mean you know dislike it for several reasons having to do with the filmmaking quality. Don't necessarily dislike it because of the fact that you're anti-war. I'm nominally anti-war, but I also understand that sometimes wars do have to be fought for the greater good. And you know it's it's one of those things where it's like, what what are you even talking about in some cases? And it's like I it really does yeah it, it goes to that disconnect that we that I think audiences have where it's like they need everything spoon fed to them, and it's fine because the more you you know it's like for a while I do think Spielberg would have been one of those filmmakers where people are accusing him of spoon feeding the audience. But the more you watch his films, especially now in the modern blockbuster landscape, he doesn't give you all the information that he he wants to impart. You're you sometimes have to fill in the blanks for you. But yeah, so Darren, what is your number three favorite uh, Spielberg movie? Well, my number three, we've already talked about it. it. It's Jaws. Um, again, it's the movie that got me into film. Um, it's a movie that obsessed me. I had to control it. Like we, I've already said all that. I think the only thing I can really add to Jaws that a lot of people don't really talk about is it's not about the shark. The shark looks fake. I think it's one of those happy accidents where they were planning on showing the shark from the very beginning. If they had done that, um, if they'd gone, maybe, I don't know why I'm making this, the Godzilla 1998 route of making a movie and showing it from the beginning where you're just able to nitpick it if they were to do that, I don't think I would have bought it as much. The way they were hiding the shark and the way they kept it a secret until they had to absolutely positively show it. By the time that thing shows up at what, like the hour and 20 minute mark, like it feels like a shark. Yeah. But the thing is, it's not about the shark. It's about those three men, Brian, like you said, on that boat. It's about them trying to prove something. To the, Again, if you look at it in the context of the sequels, what's missing from the sequels is that Brody Hooper quint dynamic that made that movie so strong. Uh, there was a review, I think it might have been Ty Burr in uh, Entertainment Weekly, I can't remember, I'm probably getting it wrong, but Jaws is often blamed for, again, creating that blockbuster. But the scene where Quint is giving his monologue about the Indianapolis, and it's not just so much Quint's monologue in the way that Robert Shaw is performing it. It's Richard Dreyfuss's look of utter and complete awe of yeah. Robert Shaw's performance, of that monologue. That's about the power of movies. And there's a connection there that those three characters have for the rest of the movie where you're with them, right? And that's what makes Jaws from that character that a lot of blockbusters these days don't have. Mm-hmm. And so it, even though it started the blockbuster boom, I think that it's still at the height of blockbusters. It shows 
you know, again, like Top Gun Maverick just basically did. It shows you what a good blockbuster can do. It's not about the spectacle so much as the characters and the story feeding into that spectacle. I, I, yeah. I'm going to shout that to the heavens <laughs> and I won't ever stop. People just don't understand that it's not just this, it's empty spectacle. You don't have somebody to root and your, your heart. So Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that movie is, uh, every, every time I watch that movie, it's, it's just one of those things where you, you just get sucked in from moment one. And, you know, it's like, I, I, I didn't mention it, but what you said about, you know, this movie opening up generations who were not comfortable talking about their experience with words. Like you kind of see that in Quint as far as that's the same type of thing that Cooper and Brody are seeing Quint do in that moment with the Indianapolis. It's like, you're getting, you know, he's, he's Quint is a character who is putting on this tough persona of, Oh, I'm, you know, the great hunter who's going to kill this shark. And then you see why he's so driven and you get the emotional part of it. And that is one of those moments that is just absolutely brilliant. It's, you know, and so it's justifiably famous, but it's, it's one of those moments of character building that Spielberg does not get enough credit for, I think in a lot of his best movies. Um, you know, but yeah, Jaws is, Jaws, Jaws is one of the greats. My number, so I think my number three, and, uh, it is probably recency bias, but at the same time, I do think this is a movie that I'm going to cherish for the rest of my life. And it is the Fableman's because of how much it connected with me and my personal experiences with my family and my growing up and you know it's like i you know it's like yeah i can see how somebody can say it's too long at two and a half hours it kind of drags i think part of the reason though that that does is that it's episodic ultimately it's like there are jumps in timeline there are jumps of years and months between some of these events that we're seeing but old and but one of the things that i respond to is the fact that it Spielberg is showing that the way we remember significant times of our lives is not necessarily going to create a neat character arc. The narrative is going to reveal itself, but there's going to be times where you have lulls, where, you know, things kind of move in neutral for a long time before they rev back up. And I think that's one of the things that I love about what he does with the Fablemans. And uh, I I just, you know, I I, I wrote about for my uh, post on uh, In Their Own League. I, I think the, uh, once Mitzi sees the footage that Sammy shows her, I, that, from that moment on, I think the character building, this narrative building between Mitzi and Sammy is one of, some of the best character building Spielberg's ever done. And you can see how much he cares about, how much he cared about his family because of the fact that this was, this was about showing a kid starting to see their family, their parents especially, as people. 
as opposed to just caregivers. And that's, that's a, that, that is an experience that can be difficult, but it's one that is rewarding. And I, I do think that this is a movie that I'm always going to consider Treasures one of my favorites of his. Well, I have to say too about the favorite ones. I, I mentioned it already. It's, it's a movie that I'm still processing. There's a chance if you ask me, and, and this is my problem with lists, yes. is that they're subject to change on a regular basis. If, if you were to ask me within five, 10 years, and me sitting on the Fablemans for that much, it might move up to my number one. I don't know. I can't tell you right. All I know is that I really enjoyed it. I loved what it had to say. I loved the, the connections I had to it. I don't know how deeply it's affected me because, again, I just saw it maybe a week and a half ago, so I'm not quite there yet. But the fact that I'm still processing it, is, I think that says something about the movie itself and great movies in general. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, what is your number two? I'll just let the uh, poster speak for itself. <laughs> and for those listening and not watching video, that would be Jurassic Park. Yeah, I know you and I, you and I talked about it a lot on our Dominion uh, episode earlier this year. Um, I, it, it, it's number six on my list. I mean, I, I did think about putting it on this list because I do love it for a while was my favorite Spielberg. Um I I I love the adventure. I love the music. It it's it's you know it's it's a great example of you know yeah the characters are not as deep but it's still one of the best examples of the spectacle of what 90s blockbusters were and what they could create and the adventure that they could do. You know, the fact that you make a sequence like the T-Rex scene and it's not even the highlight of the movie. I I think the kitchen (laughs) scene with the Raptors even more is even more tense and suspenseful. And that basically stretch of filmmaking from the kitchen on is a tremendous building and release of suspense. And I, yeah, I I absolutely love Jurassic Park. It's uh, <laughs> I think you can take three or four set pieces from that movie and say that they're the greatest set pieces Spielberg has ever done. You could make an argument for that. Um, I know that Drew McWeeny talks a lot about how the temperature raised when he watched Jurassic Park in the theater. That that T Rex scene, you know what I'm you know, just how the way that the kids are involved, the way that the the uh, again, if we're looking, we talked about special effects earlier. There's, how, there's minimal special effects shots, CGI shots of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, right? It's all about the mixture of the um, practical stuff and the CG and the people's reaction to it. it, it that's what sells it. It's not just a, a plausible CG rendering something, you know what I mean? So it's, and, and again, the, like I talked about with the action, the kitchen scene has some of the greatest like choreography, like the way that you think the Raptor's going after Lex, but it turns out to be her reflection, stuff like that. Yeah. All, all that stuff in here, the, the objects might be closer than they appear in the mirror, that kind of thing. It's just, you know, the way that the T-Rex is a big bumbling dinosaur that doesn't know what he's doing. It's nothing personal, but the Raptors are personal. It's, it's you know, you could definitely make an argument, uh, Daniel, for that being a top Spielberg. Absolutely. Yeah, and they even call back the uh, kitchen scene in Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, and that spoon is still laying on the floor. 
like you would think that in all these years since rebuilding the park and everything that they would have at least done some sort of cleanup no they just I mean, it's like the visitor center became some sort of memorial that's like that's like in the Simpsons. I think in the Simpsons movie, there's a part where they're jumping a chasm and you still see the ambulance that hit the tree in one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good touch. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park is, it, it's, it's, I, you know, I, again, I do see what Jason is saying as far as it was his last big populist movie. I mean, it, it let's face it, it was the last time he was top of the box office behemoth with with a movie um but at the same it's time it's also the theming it's a theming too it's, it's every scene is about that technology versus nature it's yeah ingrained in the movie from the very first shot to the very last shot it's amazing from that perspective yeah um so darren what is your number two all right my number two is et um Again, I told you that it gets um, more personal. The, the more personal a movie is, the higher it'll rank. Number one, E.T. is a fantastic movie. There's a reason it kept playing and playing, right? It's a reason that people cheered in the audience the first time that E.T. flies with Elliot There's a, and flying with the, all the kids later. I love the way that the movie shot. Spielberg, again, he has an intrinsic way of dealing with children. You see the behind-the-scenes stuff, how he deals with Drew Barrymore, how he deals with... Um, uh, God, I can't. It's it's I'm blanking. I know Robert McNaughton's name and the main the main kid. Ellie. Henry Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. The way he deals with Henry Thomas, all that stuff. It's and they're so believable. The way that he made. I think Drew Barrymore did an interview with Dee Wallace and Robert McNaughton just recently, or Henry Thomas just recently, when Spielberg made E.T. seem real, so that Drew Barrymore would, as a kid, would think that it was a real animal that would talk to him. just that stuff. The way that he shoots most of the movie from hip level, which is how a kid would see the world, mm-hmm. right? And how adults can't see below that. It's it's not, and, and the way that, holy cow, the way that E.T. dies and the way that he comes back alive and just the, the cheers. What was it, on, Brian, on 80s all over where uh, Scott and Drew were talking about, it's like E.T., like, it's like Peter Pan, like Tinkerbell yeah. clapping her yeah. back to life. It's that kind of effect. But the thing with E.T., it's, that's everything that Spielberg is. He says that that's, Spielberg is his way of dealing with things psychologically and emotionally. He makes movies, right? Mm-hmm. And E.T. says it's maybe the most personal movie that he's ever made. But So you can look at E.T. and you can see this is what Spielberg is about. But you can also look and see what Darren Lundberg is all about by looking at E.T. Like, mm-hmm. again, I told you, I was an only child. I didn't have brothers or sisters. I didn't have any friends. I just had a mom that was taking care of me that would work all day to support us, right? So the fact that E.T. is able to get a friend, the way he's able to inspire people, gain more friends, so that at the very end, he has to let that friend go, but he's able to make all these other friends. And you see that in Dee Wallace's face, the way that she reacts mm-hmm. to Elliot becoming an adult, like a grown boy, right? That's me on a screen. I can't tell you how emotional that movie, when it gets to that point, the way the whole movie's geared and it's structured to so it gets to that point, the mess that I'm in at the end because... That's me on a screen. Sure, I've never dealt with an alien before, but I did have Star Wars toys. I did have Transformers toys that mm. were my only friends, right? So I absolutely connect with it. Again, it's a primal thing that Spielberg is able to do. How in hell does he get me up on a screen, even though he's more getting himself? I don't know yeah. how he does it. I don't know why other filmmakers can't in that same way. But E.T. is just, it's magic for me. I can't believe that's not my number one, but there is a movie that does affect me more deeply. But... E.T.'s 
again, another crowd pleaser. Yeah, and I think based on our previous experiences, I know exactly what that one is. And, you know, E.T. is my number two as well. And uh, I I remember, you know, I don't necessarily remember watching this movie in theaters as a kid, but I do remember the 2002 special edition watching it. And it was an empty, relatively empty theater. And there were a few people in there, but it's like, how how are you not filling the theater for E.T.? Yeah. I mean, part of that is the special edition aspect, which, I mean, even Spielberg is, you know, disowned basically at this point. all the walkie-talkies. Yeah. 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 Yep. <laughs> I mean, even he's disowned it at that time, at this point. You know, he, he went in the opposite direction of Lucas. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being so, so disheartened by the fact that, you know, people weren't necessarily lining up to see this. It's like, it's E.T., what are you doing? I mean, you know, I, I re- rewatched it, I think in September, I rewatched it. It was after the, it actually was the exact day of the Fablemans trailer came out because I, I'd wanted to rewatch it because I missed it for the 40th anniversary, but I still wanted to rewatch it. And it, it, it still plays so beautifully. And the ways in which he, he kind of, impro- he kind of, uh, he, he kind of employs that same technique that he ended up having to use in Jaws, right? Where it's like, give the feeling of E.T., but not showing E.T., because we don't really see E.T. until that first time in the cornfield. And, you know, I it's funny. It's like thinking about that. It's like, oh, my God, of course he's going to have E.T. and Elliot meet in the cornfield. Because that's as cliche and alien th- encounter as you could have. But it's one of those things where you don't even think about it. But, um, no, I... The, the, everything about that movie just works on just such a basically emotional level. And it's like, but it's also arguably the most fun movie he has ever made where you have the great, even something as silly as D Wallace, like putting stuff away in the closet and you, you pan across the, (laughs) the, 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 the the toys and ET is just right there. Just in the middle, she doesn't bat an eye, and it's like, you know, I I love that. I I love, you know, it, it's funny because of the fact that I'm such a mystery science theater three thousand fan. Now I can't watch the scene where he's in the in the living room and this island Earth is coming on, and he he accidentally, and it's like I ha- I think of the MST three K commentary for that scene for this island earth and then when i saw the quiet man eventually it's like oh my god that's such a great scene and i i love the quiet man now and um there's your john ford connection again yeah yeah exactly and uh but you know and then you have this scene where it's it's just such a beautifully sad scene the fact that you know, you you're excited because Elliot's getting better, but then the sinking p- feeling of the reason he's getting better is because of the fact that ET is getting worse. And you know, it's it's one of those things where you you just get overwhelmed with emotion at that moment, and it's it's just such a 
it's it's such a perfect film. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it is criminal that took Schindler's List for him to get an Oscar because he, if there was a movie in his early career, he should have won for he should have won for ET. It's it's far and away one of the best pieces of directing I think we've ever seen. Well, you could also make an argument for Jaws. You could make an argument for Raiders of the Lost Ark, like just mastering what other people only dream of mastering. Yeah. Like that's, that's the thing with Spielberg. Man. <laughs> that's why I think that awards also ultimately don't really matter in retrospect because that's not what signifies. What oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Danielle, what are your uh, thoughts on E.T.? Or are we about to get to it? No, we're not about to get to it. Uh, other than uh, there's a universe where there's a larger Harrison Ford row in that film, which I think I've got. <laughs> right. <laughs> Plays the teacher, right? And they only showed him from the neck down. Yeah, either the teacher <laughs> or principal, one of the two. One of those, yeah. I think it was the principal, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But, Yeah. Yeah, it it's a uh, it's it's a terrific film. So Danielle, what is your uh, favorite Steven Spielberg film? Uh, Schindler's List, a film that I've only seen uh, twice in my life, and there's a reason mm. why I've only seen it twice in my life. It's just so hard to watch. Yeah, yeah. I get. I mean, I liken it to my experience this past week watching the U.S. and the Holocaust on the DVR. You get so emotionally numb by the end of it that like. You really need to have plenty of comedies to watch afterwards. Mm-hmm. There are some movies, and again, I have some movies that are in my top 10 that I've only seen maybe once or twice because they're so powerful that they ingrain themselves in your brain from the instant you watch them. And it's Schindler's List, is I, it's not a movie that you can just sit down and watch. Whenever I do sit yeah. down and watch it, I'm in awe of the, the mastery of it. But someone... You know, if you have a personal connection to that movie, it's definitely more emotionally draining. But it's emotionally draining to begin with. I just think that so many of the images in there, so many moments in there are just ingrained that you don't have to sit down and watch to remember the feelings yeah, I mean, and the emotions. My first viewing was Yoma Shoah in 2004 when I was in college at Bradley. And then my second viewing was the 25th anniversary Blu-ray in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I did go see it in theaters. Uh, I saw it as part of a church group. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely it definitely left an impression on me. But by that at that point, I wasn't quite... I hadn't quite had my holy shit mo- moment with movies where I really identified that emotional connection to movies. I hadn't quite gotten there. So really, it's funny the the experience, the moment where I really had that with Schindler's List was the first time it was on network in 1997. I was I was alone in my college dorm. I was just alone in my room. I was watching it, and that was when the just overwhelming emotion of it just hit me. And. You know, by this point, I'd started to see more serious movies. I'd started to branch out into art house films and just really started to get a sense of myself as an individual. And, uh, you know, so seeing Schindler's List, just even on that small screen, TV screen, you know, it it just had an 
it it just had an impact where it's like, okay, this is you know I intellectually speaking when I watched it the first time, I understood why it was important. The when in 1997 watching it on network TV, that's when I realized emotionally why it was important. And you know, it's 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 one of those things where. Yeah, I mean, the more personal of a connection, I it I can imagine it be. It's absolutely unbearable. I mean, you know, you you watch scene like the the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto. It's like I know I remember Spielberg saying that that for him that had to be absolutely unwatchable, and it really is. And it's it's absolutely unbearable the way he. He doesn't let you out of it. Doesn't let you out of that movie with any of the tools that he did in order to create thrills like Rares of Lost Ark or Jurassic Park or Jaws. It's and it's absolutely extraordinary. And uh yeah, it's it is it is his masterpiece. It is I I think it is one of the few films I would say is unequivocally a masterpiece. Um, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's also a film that, yeah, you have to be in a particular mindset to watch and you, you, you have to be willing to go on that very profound emotional journey with him. And there's a universe where he doesn't even direct the film because Billy Wilder, was trying to get the rights to uh, direct it. Yeah, and he and later Scorsese, right? Yeah, and he he gave it to Scorsese at one point. He gave it to Sidney Pollack at one point. He gave it to uh, who was who was the other Roman Polanski at one point. And I mean, Grant Polanski would go on, but Polanski was is in the kind of the same position as Spielberg at the time. He wasn't ready to tell that story either. And he eventually told his own story with the pianist. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was Spielberg's, it was Scorsese's at one point. And then Spielberg finally was like, I think I'm ready to tell it. And so that's how Scorsese ended up doing Cape Fear. It's weird to think that Cape Fear is an Amblin release. You know, you, you wouldn't necessarily think those two are combined, but then again, then again, Kunun was released by Disney. So, I mean, you know, it's the, the, the Hollywood is weird at times, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, there is a universe in which Spielberg is not making Schindler's List, but I'm, I'm, I'm profoundly glad, grateful that he was the person to make put this story on on screen, and uh, and more important because of the fact that you know some of those act some of those actors who wanted to play the part would have been completely wrong. And uh, you needed somebody who you were not as aware with like Liam Neeson in that role because of the fact that the movie is essentially, the movie is about somebody who you're not completely sure about throughout most of the movie. So uh, unless we have anything more on Schindler's List, Darren, what is your, and I'm guessing probably my favorite, uh, Steven Spielberg film? I think so. Well, if I was to only add one thing from Schindler's List, Danielle, it's like I could see you getting emotional talking about it, and that's 
Um, an emotional reaction to a movie is something that's so precious and so special. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that I don't know a lot of people, a lot of people's connection to movies is, oh, I always wanted to see Iron Man punch Captain America in the face. Like that's their whole, that's what their life has led to, right? And that's fine. But I'm like, well, there's deeper things than that, I think. And like Schindler's List is going to have that connection for you. It's, it's a testament, like I said, to Spielberg's power as a director. And like I was saying before, Jurassic Park missed my top. It's not in my top 10. I know I, it's kind of blasphemous for a lot of people. I've seen it a lot of times. I know the appeal of it. I love this, the set pieces. And I know that you could make a claim that Jurassic Park is so much better directed than my favorite movie, my favorite Spielberg movie. But there's just something personal about it. Again, Brian, I think you're right. We have the same movie. It's AI artificial intelligence. Because if you were to look at... I think it's a, from... First of all, if you're looking at it from, you know, Spielberg has always looked at it as being too soft, right, as a director, too sentimental. If you were to look at Kubrick, who famously gave this to Spielberg because he didn't think he had the guts or the heart to do it, Kubrick being the coldest of all directors, and they mesh, I think this is Kubrick's gift to Spielberg. This is Kubrick's gift because they were friends. It's like, this is your chance to really grow up. This is your chance to, like, not be cold, not be sentimental, not have any of that. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, number one, that that last bit, he's dealing with aliens. It's not aliens. Why would people think it's aliens? (laughs) The whole movie's been dealing with androids and robots, right? They're highly advanced, the most highly advanced robots and androids. So people mistake that for sentimental, but it's probably his most bittersweet ending. And Daniel, like you talked about Schindler's List being that personal thing for you, I could make a case for AI being so well-directed because there are scenes that feel directed when he's when he's meeting, uh, David's meeting Jigolo Joe for the first time, and the way that Jude Law is dancing, you see the moonlight in the background, so there's just, the way later where, where you see David commit suicide, I guess, and it has a shot of Jigolo Joe, and it has, like, rain from the, the window, but it's fine, and it looks like a tear. There are just so many things, as a movie, I think it's solid, but the thing that gets me, and the thing that this is the reason why Jurassic Park will not be my number one, because Jurassic Park, even though I love it, I don't have that emotional connection to anything. I, I appreciate it. But I'm not a big dinosaur person. I'm not a big paleontologist person. You know, I'm not a big Disney person. At the end of AI, the whole movie is about him connecting to his mother. I've already mentioned that's my thing with my mom, how my mom was my whole world. To the point where she would work. And on Sundays, Sundays were our day, like when I was little, before I became a teen. That was our day where I would go in and I would cuddle with her in bed and we would just talk. And just talk about our week, talk about our day. We would spend the day together. We would eat together. And the moment in this movie where the androids grant David his wish, and he walks into that room, out loud in the theater, I went, that's my room. That's my mom's room. <laughs> because there was that gold light that he was bathed. That's how I remember this. To the point where I realized what was happening, that this is going to be the last moments of them together. And realizing that my connection to my mom, what that was meaning to me, for the rest of however 10, 15 minutes, again, I'm I'm getting a little tipsy here, but for the last 15 minutes in the theater, I was a mess. I have never been that much of a sobbing, emotional mess in my entire life watching that movie for the first time. And the fact that, again, Spielberg is able to pull something out of me and show it on the screen. I can't, I, I know people look down on it. There's the, you know, people think it's a terrible movie. I, I can't think that because 
it affected me more personally than most movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what else I can say. It's just, yeah. Um, no, I, yes, my, my, my favorite Spielberg is AI, artificial intelligence. I don't know if you guys notice, but in the back, I do have a poster of AI that I just put up. Um, it's, this was a movie that I was obsessed with because I had become a Kubrick fan by this point. And so by the time I was, by the time Eyes Wide Shut came out, I was excited for that because it was Kubrick. From the second I heard that Kubrick and Spielberg were going, that Spielberg was going to be making this movie, I got excited. I read just about everything you could possibly read about this movie. I read I read articles leading up to the release of this movie. I read blog posts in the early internet about this movie, interviews with people, reviews of this movie. One of my favorite movie-going experiences of all time was myself, my mom, and three of my friends, uh going to the theater to see this on opening night, which was the Thursday before it released. And it was at the first, at the time I'll admit, I wasn't entirely sure how much I liked it. I I thought it was admirable. I also thought it was kind of messy as far as some of the filmmaking, especially, especially in the middle with, uh, him in the wilderness with Jigolo Joan, the flesh bear, and all that stuff. And I wasn't quite sure how he felt about that. Then we go back to see it. I saw it a few times in theaters. And this is a movie I... So if, you know, if on Song Cinema, we have a page for comment... We have a uh, listing for commentaries. Uh, before we transition to podcasts um i would do fan commentaries with some of my friends uh about movies that would come out mostly blockbusters and stuff like that we we did a couple of spielberg movies we did kingdom of the crystal skull we did et and we did ai um and it was with those three friends that i saw the movie with this movie came out about a year or so after my grandfather had passed away from cancer. And uh, he, I was very close to him, and he was my only grandfather for a long time And because uh, all my previous ones had passed away. And I, so it, it, it was a tough thing to uh, watch him go. So, you know, the, the connection that you had with the scene, Darren, you know, with regards to your mother, it's like, I, I had that scene, it's like, it would, for me, that scene played like, you know, I, what I would, how I would feel if I got to spend one more day with my grandfather as I knew him before, uh, before cancer had really taken a hold of him. And... That's when that's where the movie made its impact with me. And just over the years it grew. It grew and it grew and it's like 
I I love how messy this movie is at times, but I love how I love how challenged Spielberg feels to make something in a way that's very familiar to Kubrick, but also threading that needle with his own sensibility when it comes to the emotions. Frances O'Connor's Monica does not get the credit she deserves when it comes to Mothers and Spielberg films. I think she, her character is one of the richest mother roles we've ever seen in a Spielberg film. The scene where she imprints on him, and the, even the scene where she abandons him, you know, is is heartbreaking. It It's heartbreaking because of the fact that she makes a choice in that moment. The easy moment, the easy thing for her would have been to just let him be decommissioned and that's it. She doesn't make the easy choice and she knows what type of world she is putting him into. And the way that he's... And and it's this complicated nature of love. It's this complicated nature of love between a parent and a son. It's this complicated nature of love with how do we do we have a responsibility for the things that we project feelings on? And how do we how how what is our responsibility to the things that we love? And I I think that's one of the things that really comes through beautifully especially the more you watch this this isn't this this isn't even in my top five best spielberg films as far as craft but it's it's my favorite because of the fact that it is like like with you darren it's it's one that speaks to me just profoundly on an emotional level well, the other thing, too, you mentioned it quite a bit. I think, and maybe we're all in agreement on this, I think people only conflate uh, masterpieces with perfect movies. Mm-hmm. If you were to think of masterpieces, uh, the one I usually go to is the Mona Lisa, which is not a perfect drawing. Like, the, the backgrounds don't match, right? They, they don't, the eyelines don't match. It's like, some things don't make sense. But you argue about it. That's the whole point. It's a conversation piece. It gets you talking. I think, I agree with you, like, that's what I'm saying. You could make a, a, a debate with me that Jurassic Park is better made than AI. I, I don't know if I could fight you on it. I think AI is a great, finely made film. I just think that the messiness is part of what makes it so great because it's like it's fighting with something. You could tell it's Spielberg fighting with something. It's not an easy. The flesh bear stuff, you could look at that, and even I think Spielberg's even said that's a like a metaphor for the Holocaust in a way. Yeah. It's, but it's on display for people. People are paying for it and cheering it on, watching these things. There are shots. There's one shot where they shoot a, an android out of a cannon, and you see its face kind of slide down on the bars, and it's haunting. Like it's haunting. Mm. And again, you could take that, like I said, as a Holocaust parable. So there's that personal bent that can tie in with Spielberg. Um, the other thing too, you mentioned Monica abandoning David. The thing that science fiction does, the best science fiction, like people think of Star Wars as sci-fi, that's different. That's sci that's fantasy, that's science, that's space opera, right? Sci-fi to me is like 2001, Blade Runner. It's like movies that are metropolis, movies that are not necessarily entertaining, but they're movies that force you to confront things about humanity. 
So the part where Monica releases him, again, that's an idea. You can raise a kid only so far, and then you have to, sorry for the being so on the nose, but you release him into the wild and hope that they make it on their own. Instead of making those choices for David and decommissioning, she sets him free. And that's, again, it's, it's a po- Pinocchio parable. He's able to find that and become a real boy at the end because of all these experiences. And you're right. It's like, if I only had one more day to be with my mom, how do you say goodbye to someone? I just think, you know, you can roll your eyes at me saying, I is my favorite Spielberg movie, but I'm going to say, screw you. It's like, this is me, right? This is my movie. This is why it affects me. We come back to that Spielberg affecting you differently than it affects most people. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking of saying, oh, well, Kubrick would never have ended it with him and Monica <laughs> reunite. Uh, the fact is, he was planning on doing that. It wouldn't have necessarily been the same way that Kubrick did, that Spielberg did, but that was very much in the plans the entire time. And there's, I mean, even Ian Watson, who was one of the uh, story writers before Spielberg took over the screenplay, has said that much. But yeah, so it's, no, and you know, I, the, the choice that, I, I love that choice that Monica has to make. It's, it is, it's a harrowing one. And I, I love the way you, you framed it, but it's also the fact that she realizes that now that, you know, when, when you, she, she has her son back, you know, she has her son back. And so he, she, even though he gave, even though David gave her comfort for time, now he's a threat to her real son. And that, that push and pull of what does that mean? How am I going to deal with that is just, it, it's, it's amazing the way this is handled. I don't think there's a moment in this movie that's comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, a, a lot of people like to complain that that's a happy ending. It's like bullshit. Like you're not watching the movie at all. You don't know what's going on. You need to go to learn how to watch a movie for crying. It's like I said, it's bittersweet. It's like not a happy ending. It's so sad in a way that again, it's Kubrick melding with Spielberg. And it's, it's, I don't know. There's a coldness to that sentimentality that just makes it even more haunting. It's just, it's not a comfortable movie from frame one. Mm-hmm. But people confuse it for that. That's subjective. Yeah. Danielle, what are your uh, thoughts on it? Seeing it? I, I don't, you know, it's like Grant, Darren and I, I feel like Darren and I, in a way, have yeah. been waiting to have this conversation <laughs> for a while on AI. I'm but... so sorry, we talked for an hour on AI and you just had to sit here and watch this. I'm sorry. <laughs> We've spoken for so long that I think we're longer than the fable it's running time. <laughs> Yeah, we're 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 kind of we're kind of at that point, but no, I mean, but the thing is, it's like this is this. I mean, look, we've had some dive, we've had some dive, we've had some moments where we've diverged from topic, but I think ultimately all of the topics that we're talking about are central to talking about Spielberg, and you know whether that's the ways in which he's melded certain other filmmakers into his own sensibilities, whether that how his films connect with connected with people 30 years ago versus how they connect with people now. It's all a part of the larger discussion that is Spielberg. And the thing is, we're not even, we haven't even talked about um, 
a lot of his producing 1941. work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, you know, but... Uh, but Danielle, what do you think of... What are, what are your thoughts on AI? If you I had to draw... I had to get my review online. I mean, I haven't oh. watched it since the 20th anniversary in 2021. Yeah. I will say that's a. I will say it's a movie I'm really hoping gets a 4K release at some point because that. I mean, it's it's a movie that is just staggeringly beautiful. It's some of Kaminsky's best work, I think, for Spielberg. Yeah, let's see. I wrote that uh, Gigolo Joe's throwback to the 1930s as uh, Jude Law studied both uh, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly's work which also tells you how Spielberg wanted him presented in the film. Wardrobe uh, goes from generic to vintage once uh, Davis left the film then for himself, and Bob Ringwood gives the film a, uh, gives the costumes a timeless fill, and of course, Janice brings his a game as usual, but the strongest parts I felt were the visual effects and the score. Mm-hmm. And of course, Spielberg goes for practicality whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah, Jude Law is amazing in this movie. He 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 really is. It I I think I do think Jigolo Joe is one of his best performances. But um, yeah. So uh, as, as Danielle pointed out, we have at this point run uh over the uh, running time of the Fablemans. But again, I I feel like for a filmmaker like Spielberg, with the career that he has had over fifty plus years. That's necessary. You need to have that amount of time for uh, somebody like Spielberg. And I, I am grateful that we finally were able to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you two for a long time since we first yeah. started talking about it. And uh, Danielle and Darren, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, I've been waiting to have a conversation with Danielle for I can't tell you how long. So this is a great <laughs> <laughs> this is a great opportunity. Yeah, and we've been talking about this uh, since however long ago it was on uh, Twitter. Yeah. About doing a Spielberg podcast. Yeah, I can't because remember. Because we just, we can't relegate it to Twitter. We can't relegate this kind of conversation. No, because it'll get lost in the algorithm. But, um, <laughs> and plus, Twitter's kind of a, even more of a hellscape than it already was at this point. Um, but, uh, Okay, before we uh, sign off, though, uh, Danielle and Darren, uh, go ahead and let people know where they can find you online. Salzy at the movies.com. That's S-O-L-Z-Y at the movies.com. Danielle S-A-T-M on Instagram. Danielle S-A-T-M at mstdn.social on Mastodon. And I'm also Danielle SATM on Twitter, but I'm no longer actively logging in. My pinned tweet will tell you where you can uh, find me. And Salzy at the Movies on Facebook. Yeah, Salzy at the Movies, I will also <laughs> tell people to follow that. Again, Danielle, great writer, great, great opinions, great personal bent. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your perspective and that you talk to me every now and then. <laughs> so I'm going to miss our, I'm going to have to join those other things so I can actually chat with you some more. But yeah, you can, 
unfortunately, like the only place you can really find me is on Twitter. That's where I met a lot of my friends. I, I don't, I'm too old, man. I don't, I, my, <laughs> my son celebrated his 21st birthday today. <laughs> so I, I'm too old to go out and, and, and try to start a new social media experience. I'm, I'm going to have to at some point because Twitter keeps going down. But you can find me at D.W. Lundberg. Uh, there's a picture of Kevin Costner and Field of Dreams. It's my avatar. That's how you're able to find me. We host the Nostalgia Cast, me and my childhood friend, Johnny. We talk all these movies about our childhoods. Like I mentioned, we're tackling 90s movies. Um, AI obviously missed that by about two years. Still a lot of personal experiences to take out from from the 90s. So please give us a, a shot. We've been having a lot of great conversations. Brian, again, is a part of another great conversation that's upcoming. I'd uh, love to have Danielle on at some point, uh, which I think we've had chats about that before. But yeah, we always welcome great conversations and we've been having that so far. Just having a great time. So please join us. I'm always available. Just a matter uh-huh. of press training schedule, festival <laughs> schedule. I mean, January, I'm not even going to be at home for over half a month. Mm-hmm. I'll leave you alone until February then. <laughs> I'll let you free one last thing. <laughs> but yeah, Darren, Danielle, thank you very much for joining me. I'm glad we were able to get this scheduled. I'm glad we were able to finally have this conversation. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'd like to thank Danielle and Darren for joining me once again on the podcast. I, I've been looking for forward to this discussion for a while, and I'm glad we were finally able to have it. Uh, Spielberg's a big meal of a filmmaker to talk about regardless of how you feel about him and I think we covered a lot of topics yeah we had a few uh, few uh, times where we kind of got off track but I think again like I said in the episode I think it's important to have those discussions on uh, the ways people react to films now versus how they did when Spielberg was as peak as on the box office charts. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, keep um, keep Danielle and uh, Darren in mind to uh, check out their check out their stuff. I can't wait to share the next episode of Nostalgia Cast. And I do want I am planning on having both of them on later in, in uh, 2023. Uh, check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. Check out my band camp for my music and also click subscribe, rate and review on whatever, wherever you listen to the podcast and uh, whether it's the YouTube channel or other places. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy. <laughs>